0: The Senate thinks there's something fishy going on. Either they're being misled to think there's a secret crash retrieval alien reverse engineering program, or there is a secret crash retrieval reverse engineering program. Either way, this is concerning.
1: Hello there. How are you all? You doing all right? We're nearly finished filming up here in Argentina just a couple of days ago. What an eye opening trip this has been. Honestly, truly incredible. To see what it's like to live under high inflation, you've got to see it to believe it sometimes. And you know what? The Argentinian people are amazing, absolutely amazing people. I've loved it here. I don't don't want to go home, but we're nearly done, and the film will be with you soon. Anyway, welcome to the What Alien Did podcast, which is brought to you by the legends of Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter Moore Cormack, and today we have a very different show for you. We're getting into aliens. So whenever we have recorded with Matthew Pines in the past, after the show, we always get onto the topic of aliens. Also, when we post it out, whenever we put up on Twitter, we've recorded with Matthew Pines. Everyone is like, did you ask him about the aliens? So Danny was like, dude, we've got to make the show about the aliens. We've got to get Matthew on. We've got to talk about the aliens. So we did it. We got together in Nashville. We sat down for nearly three hours to get into what's going on with aliens. Do they exist? Are they real? Are they coming? Is it going to be revealed? Are they here? Are they here? incredible stuff. Really crazy episode. Now listen, fair warning, we don't talk about Bitcoin in this episode. There is no Bitcoin in this episode. It is 100% what aliens did. And so we've given the show a slightly different title. But let me know what you think. Look, I want to know one, you don't care. Happy to hear it. You want to hear this other stuff because you know what? There's cool people in Bitcoin who know about other crazy stuff. Two, you don't want to hear it, but you don't care. You're just going to skip the episode and listen to Marty Bent or something else this week. Or three, screw you, Pete. I'm only here for Bitcoin. If you ever do this again, I'm going to burn your house down. Just let me know what you think. I'm cool with everything. Drop me an email. It's hello at com. All right, Matthew, how are you? I'm doing well, Peter. I think we're not going to talk about Bitcoin today. <laughs> we might. We'll see. Um, I don't think Danny has ever been so excited about an interview. That's definitely true. He has not shut up about this one. I don't think he's ever prepared so much for a show. Also, actually, every time we interview, people afterwards always say, did you talk about aliens? Mm. And we've never really got into it.
0: Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, why now? Why now? Why now? Well, that is kind of the big existential question. I don't think we actually understand why now, fundamentally, but if you're just paying attention to the news, you'll have been noticing there's been a lot more sort of UAP stuff happening in the public discourse at a serious level, so institutional level. Um, I think that is what is drawing, I think, most serious attention, sort of why is that happening, and that's where I think we can get into.
1: I don't think there's anything in my lifetime that would be more exciting than finding out that aliens are real, we know who they are, they might be talking to us. I don't think there's any... I remember as a kid, we used to have the... Um, the crop circles, mm. they'll come on the news. I remember one, one morning, I was a kid, my brother came in and told me, um, he, uh, he was working for air traffic control. Uh, he was training to be an air traffic controller and I was a lot younger. And he'd come back from Luxembourg on his training and he said, I've got to tell you something, Peter. I was like, what's that? He said, look, I'm gonna tell you this, but you cannot tell anyone. I was like, what is it, what is it? He said, right, it's part of our training in air traffic control we have UFOs come on the screen, and we know what they are, and we we have to manage that because, obviously, there's aircraft, but we know they're real. And I was like, really? He's like, no, I'm fucking with you. And it broke Mm -hmm. my heart. Um, So recently, with all this stuff that's coming out, I'm fascinated by Mm -hmm. knowing whether it's real or not.
0: Yeah, and that story I think is a common refrain that um, has been one of the leading um, justifications behind Congress taking this seriously, is that they've heard from naval aviators, other um, military intelligence personnel that have reported to them that uh, they've been encountering you know, unidentified anomalous phenomena in the course of their official duties, whether it's um, in submarines, whether it's um, at radar stations, whether it's, in, um, whether it's tracking space traffic, whether it's you know, piloting you know, our most advanced jets. And uh, up until recently, there wasn't like a formal process to report those, um, those encounters up the normal chain of command. And it was perceived by among you know, some aviators as like a uh, safety of flight concern. So this was one of the sort of initial angles of um, interaction with Congress that put pressure on the military to create more formal channels, official channels, to report this, try to help remove the stigma. As you, as you mentioned, there was a stigma around this topic that um, you know, went throughout the military and it made um, reporting these things very difficult, getting common situational awareness very difficult. So that was one of the things that Congress had put um, a lot of energy behind, putting pressure on the military to create official reporting channels. And that, that, that has happened over a number of years and they've stood up an office inside the Pentagon called the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, which is like the latest incarnation of similar um, efforts started with the, the uh, Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon Task Force that was supposed to look at these reports um, you know, with some degree of analytic rigor, try to capture as much data as possible, interview the pilots and other witnesses, and resolve the observations. And that's kind of been kind of the tip of the iceberg of official government um, action. That's where it started, but I think it's progressed a lot since then.
1: Yeah. What's interesting about that is there's, there's this one end of the spectrum where there's certain reports of you know, unidentified objects, that may cause some kind of collision risk, mm. and then there may be this other end of the spectrum whereby there are alien craft that exist that are in control, mm-hmm. or, or biological. I don't know how you refer to it. You'll correct me, but yeah, you know, some kind of biological samples which may be alien, mm. and these guys over here might might know fully well. Yeah, no, that's real because we've got we've we've got one over here. But like, they're not really talking to each other, and they can't really talk to each other.
0: Yeah, so maybe it's helpful to step back and think about how to think about this problem set because it is a very tricky question that I think is, one, it's layered with a lot of historical sort of taboo and legacy sort of um, pop culture dogma and sort of taboo. And so it's very hard to get a grip of where do you start thinking about this in a serious, rigorous, analytic approach and sort of how do you start to separate out what it is that could explain these apparent observations and then to sort of you know, go through a rigorous process of analysis and investigation to discern what's underlying it.
1: Should we go one step back further and go, mm. why should anyone listening care that Matthew Pines is telling us?
0: A hundred percent. And yeah. you, you probably shouldn't necessarily care what I have to say, but you know, if you want to listen to it, I'm I happy do. to share my thoughts. Um, yeah. So my background, I think has primed me to think about this um, with a particular mental model. So my um, sort of educational training was in physics and philosophy. So I was intellectually attracted to kind of the deeper questions, right? That everyone's always wants to sort of know the answers to is what is reality? What's the basic of uh, basics of physics? Are we alone in the universe? What's the nature of life and consciousness? All these sort of essential questions of of, um, of, of, of existence. So I was always deeply attracted to those. I decided not to become an academic and shifted into public policy and did a career in national security consulting. And so as a professional, um, uh, I really focused a lot on these sort of low probability, high consequence events, doing analysis for the government on, you know, all the things that could happen that would be, you know, should disruptive to our systems and institutions um, that we don't think are likely, but if they did happen, would be very significant. And so I looked at things like everything from pandemics to um, nuclear war, cyber attacks you know, massive earthquakes, the whole kit and caboodle of sort of bad case scenarios. Um, And I think UAPs, if they turn out to be non-human intelligence interacting with humanity, would be sort of the um, ultimate low probability, high consequence event. And so I think both like my intellectual orientation towards deeper questions and taking sort of the idea that there's always a mystery to try to unravel seriously and to apply rigorous analytical tools to do that, as well as sort of a professional orientation, thinking from a national security lens about low probability, high consequence events, Putting those two things makes me think about these things, you know, I take them seriously. I want to understand what's going on here.
1: Right. Okay. So leading on then, explain how these branches of government work and mm. why there isn't, it, it, there's like this shrouded mystery around it.
0: Well, yes. I mean, really the mystery around this topic, I mean, if you want to go really through the history, starts um, shortly after World War II right? So everyone knows about like the Roswell case, right? And you can look up all sorts of uh, videos on on YouTube where they go through kind of the history of Roswell, but that was a real incident, right? There was something that that crashed. Um, There was a report that said it was flying saucers from the Air Force, and then it was turned into a story of uh, essentially a weather balloon. Subsequently, you know, what came out was that that was a cover story for a secret sort of weather monitoring, radiation monitoring system um, the Air Force had called Project Mogul. The suspicion has been that itself was a cover story for an actual non-human craft vehicle that was retrieved, et cetera. But that sort of was the genesis of modern pop culture lore. Going back to the 40s and 50s, you know, unidentified flying objects was like a, a major topic of sort of you know, cultural discourse and it was taken very seriously by the institutions of power. There were you know a, a serious incident over Washington DC in the early 50s. It sort of gripped national attention. There was a massive press conference. All this senior brass in the military had to go out and speak to this. It was like a serious thing. And the government spun up a bunch of official investigative bodies you know, that went through a whole you know, sort of various iterations, but the most famous one was Project Blue Book. They convened sort of expert panels with scientists to sort of investigate this question and issue reports. Uh, you know, Again, very similar to what we're seeing now. Um, one of those reports uh, you know, that sort of has been sort of maligned in history is the Project Blue Book report and the Robinson panel, which basically recommended to the CIA that they should, you know, officially um, try to dissuade this as a topic of public discourse through ridicule. So that, you know, from their perspective, reports of UFOs were actually a strategic threat, given the fact we were worried about, say, Soviet um, bombers coming into our airspace. And, you know, if everyone was reporting a UFO, it would sort of swamp our ability to potentially do early detection. So it was like a a matter of national security, at least the nominal justification at the time, was we need to turn what was like a very serious, you know, un- fringy topic of sort of pop culture and political discourse and serious national security focus, turn it into kind of a cultural taboo. And that's what they did, and it was very successful. So that's kind of, you know, and then many decades of, you know, cruft and pop culture and Hollywood stories have sort of implanted, I think, a certain, set of images and tropes in our minds about what this is what it could be. And of course, everyone has seen all the different um, sort of film and narrative portrayals that are most of our common reference points and anchors for how to think about this. And so that makes it hard to treat it objectively. It makes it hard to treat it analytically because everyone comes to it with this extremely loaded cultural and historical baggage which somewhat colors how you can sort of you know peel off and try to get to the bottom of, of, what's, of what's happening here. Um, but you want to go into the like the government structure here. Mm. It's this is where um, it may be as best to start, um, you know, with something more tangible. So and something more recent. So David Grush, right, is probably the best place to sort of um, uh, you know enter into that conversation because I think his claims as a U.S. government whistleblower are the most explicit in sort of um, potentially peeling the curtain back on what the structure of secrecy is around this and the relationship between these uh, alleged legacy crash retrieval, reverse engineering programs was to, you know, the formal structures of government and accountability in Congress. So I think we can, we can peel into that. But first I would sort of step back and provide kind of just a simple analogy to how to think about thinking about this topic, knowing there's like a massive historical kind of legacy lore and a whole bunch of cultural baggage and dogma and preconceptions about what this is or isn't. And it becomes a very emotionally fraught topic. It's very hard to kind of treat objectively. So I think it's safest to sort of start by analogy is, you know, you're in a forest clearing and you're, it's well lit and you have a pretty good idea of like the epistemic terrain around you. You can discern, you know, what are the tufts of grass that are immediately proximate to you and you can go and tangibly investigate. Those are real things. So that, that category of like high credence um, epistemic terrain would be the things that we're um, seeing happening, um, in Congress, sort of objective on the record statements by political and senior military intelligence officials, historical records that have been declassified. Again, those don't get you to all the answers, but those are the high credence places to start. So, really forming that as the foundation for how you investigate this is start in the clearing, and then you recognize your you're really only gonna go so far by investigating the terrain. It's not gonna answer all of your questions. You're gonna know you're gonna to have to, you know, venture into the forest around you. And the problem with venturing into the forest around you is you can get lost in the dark forest. And you might not find your way back. So if you start if you start this conversation and investigation off in the you know, middle of the dark woods, and you start to you know, say, are these time travelers from the future? Are these aliens that have, you know, been around for millions of years? you can start there, but you can easily get lost. And so I like to start in the clearing and then work our way out and knowing that, you know, as a Bayesian, that my credences and my beliefs have to be, you know, revised, you know, always with new evidence and that, you know, I'm gonna be treated, I'm gonna treat every claim that's sort of further out into the dark, dark forest with more skepticism, because I don't think they're as well lit, they're not as well discerned uh, from my perspective. But I think that's the direction of travel, is sort of start from the dark, start from the clearing, work your way out into the forest, and I think, David Grosh is like the critical bridge that sort of takes you from the clearing into the forest. And so that's maybe the best way to structure the conversation.
1: And before we get into that, um, just understanding uh, the structure and the branches of the Mm -hmm. US government, because it's very hard to understand, you know, there, there is an election every four years, uh, a new administration comes in, but it feels like even the administration, there's parts, branches of government, mm-hmm. they can't access, that almost operate in secrecy. Mm-hmm. And so I can't even get my, like, wrap my head around, what are the governance structures yes. of these independent secretive branches? How does that, how do they operate? Mm-hmm. How do, how does the Uh, How do secrets get maintained with them? How do you join those? How do you elevate yourselves within Mm -hmm. them? And who do they essentially report to? Because you think of a company as a top-down, and whoever runs that company has access to every part of that company, or they can get access to every part of that company. But it's almost like there's these secret silos within the U.S. government. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes. Uh, So I can explain. There's three main sort of buckets of um, classification Categories that's run by really three different parts of the government. So the Department of Energy has their own entire classification system for like nuclear weapons, um, and so you have to get a separate security clearance, a separate investigation into your background if you you know get a job that requires access to that sensitive information. You know the equivalent of a top secret clearance in the Department of Energy is called the Q clearance, and it gives you access to what's called like restricted data, which is data that we um, uh, classify as, as pertains to really like nuclear weapons design information, things relating to you know, the nature and the performance of nuclear weapons. So that is an entirely separate area of the classification universe that that is managed through the National Nuclear Security Administration, which is part of the Department of Energy. It's overseen by a separate um, set of committees in Congress. But that's part of the executive branch, Nuclear Secrets. Then, of course, there's the more well-known Department of Defense and and intelligence community um, kind of uh, channels. And those share a classification um, clearance system That is the more well-known confidential, secret, top secret. And so if you're applying for a national security-sensitive position in government or as a contractor, um, and your position requires access to, say, top secret information, which is the highest classification level, you go through a background investigation. um, And, you know, you have to turn over records. You've got to, you know, submit to interviews, et cetera. And uh, that is like you get um, a top secret clearance granted to you as a person. Then there are... So that's like you get essentially... um, a ticket to like, the restaurant or a ticket to like, um, the bar, like, you're now allowed into the bar, but there's VIP sections that you're not allowed into just because you bought the ticket, right? There's a whole bunch of VIP sections inside the classified world that require separate tickets to get into, and that's actually what they're referred to, are tickets. And those that go under the rubric of compartmented programs, and in the Department of Defense, there's a whole separate structure of what are called special access programs, SAPS, and in the intelligence community, there's a you know similar called compartmented access programs, CAPS. So SAPS and CAPS in the DoD and in the intelligence community, and they mainly refer to either say like you know research development for weapons platforms in the Department of Defense, and you know uh, compartmented intelligence um, sources and methods, um, and R and D on that side. And so those are like two separate universes of, of intelligence and, and, and DOD um, compartmented programs. And you, get, uh, you have to have both the clearance and you have to have the need to know in order to get access to you know, the VIP um, ticket. And you do not um, necessarily know what all those are. So there are, within just, say, SAPS, the Special Access Program, world in the the Defense Department, for example, there are a lot of SAPs. Special access programs are used as a structure to to protect the most sensitive um, military programs, say, um, whether they're active operations or whether they're research and development concepts for new new weapons platforms. And in that, there's a whole management uh, structure that that reports up to what's called the Special Access Program um, Oversight Committee, um, uh, uh, SAPOC. and their job is essentially to you know, manage and control access to these compartmented programs and report to Congress on the money they're spending on these black, that's what like, black budgets refer to, right? Black budgets refer to money spent on those, on those SAPs. But there's a lot of SAPs. And uh, there's a difference between acknowledged SAPs and unacknowledged SAPs. So acknowledged SAPs, you might even find like, there might be you know, um, like in a line item that says, you know, like some sort of benign name for something, that we're gonna spend $10 billion on it, whatever. Um, those are reported to Congress. They're usually pretty well-documented, you know, even they're classified, but they're reported out, here's what we're gonna spend money on, this is what the, you know, the, the justification is for, we're gonna have a whole bunch of paperwork for it. And then there's like unacknowledged special access programs. Those are ones that the US government will officially deny. There's no, paper, there's no like, public tra- trail that refers to those at all. As far as the government's concerned, they don't officially exist. They are, by law, still required to report their existence to Congress, to a special subset of Congress called the, called the Gang of Eight, which is the, the two senior members of the House permit Select on Intelligence, the two senior members of the Senate Select on Intelligence, and the, uh, the, the two most senior members of the House and the Senate. So those are eight individuals that get usually verbally briefed into the unacknowledged special access programs. Then, this is like, again, I'm going down the the rabbit hole here. There are waived unacknowledged special access programs. So the secretary of defense can um, sign a letter that waives certain reporting requirements to Congress on unacknowledged special access programs where it might be like very limited verbal brief only. There'd be no written documentation provided to Congress and maybe superficial justification or, or description of what's happening. And sometimes it might not even be to all the gang of eight, it might be to like four of them. Um, So that is the structure of secrecy for the most sensitive programs inside the government. And so that, you know, the allegation, to connect this to the UAP story, the allegation that has surfaced in the past several weeks was uh, from a former very senior intelligence officer named David Grush, who was a career Air Force, then became an intelligence officer for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and the National Reconnaissance Office. He was a GS-15, which is like the highest civilian position inside the government. And his job uh, before he got involved with the UAP a topic officially was to um, com- help compile the president's daily brief, which is the most sensitive intelligence document that is- exists in the U.S. government. Uh, and he helped compile that on behalf of the director of the National Reconnaissance Office, which is responsible for all of our spy satellites, basically, the national overhead system. And so he, in that position, had, if you go back to the analogy of like tickets, he had among the most tickets you can kind of get in the government, right? The, 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 what was reported by journalist Ross Colthart, who led the interview um, with David Grush and has helped report out some of these uh, aspects of the story, is that he had up to 2,000 tickets. So that is an enormous amount. That is like, that's insane, right? That is like as many as I've ever heard, having someone having like- um, He
1: had access to a lot.
0: He had access to a lot. Um, and he was tapped, that's probably a reason why he was tapped by- um, leadership to become the uh, sort of senior National Dispatial Intelligence Liaison to what was then called the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force, which was stood up in response to congressional pressure after the 2017 New York Times article and a bunch of pilots and other folks went to Congress and said, there's a there there, you need to investigate, you need to do more official things. And the pressure on that forced the DOD to stand up this official task force. Is that the Tic Tacs? Yeah, it was the tic Tic Tacs and a few other things. That, um, you know, like David Fravor from the Tic Tac story, a few other of these, you know, now well-known with the 60 Minutes um, report have kind of entered the public discourse. But there was other, other folks that had, you know, been involved in this topic, had gone to Congress and said, you should put, put, some, put, put some pressure on. And this is kind of works where it's like, you know, there's the official legislative, you know, constraints put on the, put on the duty. And then there's like the behind the scenes if you want that special program funded, like you gotta do this for me, right? And so they stood up this task force and he was the senior co-lead for UAP for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency on this task force. And the job of the task force to answer to the congressional remit was to, you know, figure out like, what does the government know about UAPs? These things that, you know, these pilots are seeing, is there, there, there? And so he did his job. He went and started talking to people and because he had such wide access to all these SAPs, he had the access and because he had this official position, he had the need to know. And so that gave him like the golden ticket to go and talk to all of these folks inside, you know, the complex Byzantine Matryoshka doll of, 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 of secrecy in, in, in these legitimate programs. And what he alleges is that um, legitimate legal programs, special access programs being used to say, capture and reverse engineer some North Korean missile that falls into the ocean, right? Were being um, illegally diverted to do crash retrieval reverse engineering of non-human intelligence vehicles. That's his allegation. That's what makes it very explosive because he's the first senior intelligence official to come on the record with such explicit detail and to have gone through the official whistleblower process inside the Defense Department and the intelligence community to make these allegations. That's kind of where we are now is that these allegations have have been made in a formal and official manner. And now the Congress is seriously investigating them. The Inspector General of the intelligence community did their own investigation of his allegations interviewed maybe six other other folks to corroborate um, the core claims and reported that to the, the senior leadership of the intelligence community and the um, senate select committee and the house permanent select committee and they interviewed um, david grush both the inspector general as well as the senate um, the senate selecting intelligence interviewed david grush in december of 2022 um, and took apparently seven to 11 hours of testimony hundreds of pages of transcriptions and i think my like reason speculation is that what happened since December two thousand and twenty three, sorry two thousand and twenty two, and now is that um, more uh, cleared members of the Senate Select Committee Intelligence have read those transcripts and are now take, now realize this is like for real, and now you're seeing you know more legislative action that has taken place. we, we can go into that in more detail.
1: Okay, there's a lot there. Okay, yes. firstly, there's so a lot <laughs> in being a whistleblower. He hasn't committed a crime.
0: No. So he has been very careful to go through the official process. So he's not the Edward Snowden, you know, I'm going to take the CD and run. He has, um, the the chronology was he was assigned to this role as the task force lead in 2019, I believe, um, co-lead, and started doing his investigations, realized that, you know, people were telling him there is these other activities that are being conducted um, without proper authorization under the existing SAP charters that are being used to fund their activities, and this is potentially a violation of federal acquisition regulations, is a federal, you know violation of congressional reporting obligations, maybe even other illegal things were done to protect those activities from disclosure. He had folks inside those programs by his, by, by, by his account Tell him that, give him program materials, give him program locations, the actual locations of the facilities, the program managers that were um, involved in these things. So he collected like the whole dossier of where all this stuff is. And he went to the Defense Department Inspector General and said, I think there's, you know, in the course of my official duties, I've encountered allegations, serious allegations of impropriety. I've collected information from witnesses to that impropriety and I'm gonna report it to you. That's like the official, you know, government whistleblower um, process. When he reported to the Defense Department Inspector General, um, the allegations that he subsequently made is that he was um, retaliated against, that his um, access was curtailed, that his, um, you know, he was sort of threatened and basically, you know, realized that someone had leaked the fact that he was, had made this whistleblower complaint. So then about nine or 12 months later, I don't know the exact timeline, he submitted uh, like another complaint to the inspector general of the intelligence community um, not only on the original claims that there's impropriety going on with these you know uh these 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 other um sort of rogue saps but that he was also retaliated against and threatened and so that's what the inspector general uh, inspector general the intelligence community investigated found urgent incredible and then officially reported that finding to the leadership of the house um and uh senate select committees on intelligence and the uh the uh, leadership of the, the director of national intelligence. So he has followed kind of the legal process to report in you know, the formal channels, give testimony, et cetera. When he came out publicly and gave the interview, he had all of his statements cleared through what's called DOPSA, which is the Defense Office of pre Security Review, which is if you wanna make any public statements um, that relate potentially to class of information, you have to get them pre-cleared by the defense or intelligence community. And so he sent them, I'm gonna do this interview, these are the topics. This is what I'm going to say. What can I cannot say? They cleared him to say everything he said in that interview.
1: Okay. So, and he's reporting back that he's been told these programs exist. Yep. Where they exist and what they're doing, but he hasn't directly seen the programs or seen craft or capture yep. vehicles.
0: Yeah. This is entirely what you would call first-hand hearsay. Okay. Right? So he is alleging that he has had you know, firsthand interaction with individuals who themselves are directly involved in those programs, but he has not them, himself been, you know, in a hangar and witnessed the, the vehicle.
1: And when you think this through, and try and think through it critically, mm-hmm. um, what scenarios could exist here? I mean, obviously the one scenario is that it's true and it's fact these programs exist. Could he also be being used for some purpose to, mm-hmm. you know, collectively to disseminate false information for some PSYOP reason. Is that a possibility?
0: Yeah. Yeah, in fact, you have literally just paraphrased what Senator Marco Rubio had just stated in the past week and what Representative Mike Gallagher, who is the chair of the China Select Commission um, uh, on on the House side, has also stated because they've read the, the transcripts, they have heard his testimony, and they basically have the exact same dilemma, which is, He's a very credible person. So they can't just dis- dismiss his claims full stop. He's a very serious person. He is who he says he is. He, um, Can I ask a question on that? Yes.
2: So he's really successful. He's not that old. And you said he's got more tickets than anyone that mm-hmm. you've ever heard he's of. He's 36,
0: yeah. How has
2: he had such like incredible success?
0: He's very smart. He's very good. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what I've heard is that he's just a very good intelligence officer. And that's, you know, he worked his way up. I mean, he's been in the Air Force since I think he was 18. Like he sort of, that was his only job. So he's been there for almost, you
2: know. Because on the side side of things, you could see how you might think this is just basically a planted person.
0: Oh yeah, I think at this point, those are the two options is that, you know, you either think he's lying, which I think is unlikely, or you think he's telling the truth, or you think the people he's talking to were conducting a systematic deception of him for the purposes of getting his, you know, getting him to make these claims, right? Those are the three options.
1: What is the incentive to get him to disseminate false information about programs?
0: Uh, I mean, you can construct a whole bunch of plausible potential explanations. I mean, where I stand at this point is that, regardless of which of those um, you might think you lean in one direction or the other, they all I think require like serious investigation. Like that's kind of the bottom line. I think that's also the recognition that the Senate and the House have come to, which is why you're seeing them, you know, take this very seriously. This is why Sen- you know Senator Schumer just um, the other day, yesterday basically announced that he's backing an official panel, a commission modeled off of the JFK assassination um, uh, review commission that's gonna be appointed um, by Biden, about nine members in law that will collect all UAP related documents across the federal government, do a systematic review to disclose what they can about this topic. I mean, this is unusual for the majority leader of the Senate to like make this a serious topic uh, because he's heard and he's you know, he's a member of the Gang of Eight. Um, so I think that the Senate thinks there's something fishy going on. Either they're being misled to think there's a secret crash retrieval alien reverse engineering program, or there is a secret crash retrieval reverse engineering program. And I think if you're in their shoes, you gotta wonder, well, either way, this is concerning. We're either being manipulated by folks inside the intelligence community to believe aliens are real and they're not, or we're being um, manipulated by people in the intelligence community to believe that aliens are not real when they are. <laughs> this is, you know, if you're the standpoint of democratic accountability and you want to have oversight over these institutions, you know, you gotta you gotta dig in.
1: Yeah, I, I'm struggling to imagine what the scenario is for misleading that they don't they they make people think they do exist when they don't. What is the sign? What is the benefit? What what? the people who have misled him mm-hmm. or used him to mislead, uh, yeah. what, what incentive is
0: there? I mean, I, I can construct a, again, it becomes more like like Ptolemaic epicycles, right? We have to construct a story to fit the known facts and it might strain some credulity. But again, like one plausible story you could imagine um, if you wanted to construct that, that scenario was, imagine there's no such, so let me step back. There are four categories of explanation I think that apply to the UAP topic writ large. And I think they are um, not mutually exclusive, but I think they're comprehensively exhaustive. Meaning you can mix and match them, but there are only these four categories. The first category is systematic error. The second category is systematic deception. The third category is real human secret technology. The fourth category is real secret or not so secret non-human technology, right? So the first two share the distinctive characteristic. There's no real objects. They're just either you know, fictive, you know, inventions or confections of sensor malfunction. Scenario one, systematic error. All of our radars, all of our human eyeballs and pilots are just making systematic mistakes, you know, consistently seeing things that aren't there. Category two is systematic deception. There's some coordinated effort over many, many years to make other people believe that there are such things that display these anomalous performance characteristics. And you can construct different motives for why they would want to do that, but that's the category of explanation. The third category is, these are real objects, but they're human origin. We had a breakthrough technology, we figured out some aspect of physics a while ago, and we're keeping it super secret for strategic geopolitical reasons. Category four is, this is non-human technology. It is something created, you know, technologically that's not from human origin. Those are the four options. But to your scenario there, to get to this Grush scenario, you can imagine maybe it's a mix of two and three, right? To construct that scenario, it's a mix of, we created the, these things. They are super secret, ace-in-the-hole strategic capabilities that, um, that we have been holding on to for a while. Uh, but now maybe we want to sort of whisper to the Chinese, we've got this in the hole. We want to threaten them you know, or warn them, credibly deter them from uh, you know Taiwan ambitions. Deterrence. You know, it's deterrence. But you need to do it in a way that's plausibly deniable. It doesn't give too much away. And so you sort of spin this tale that, you know, in a sort of hall of mirrors counterintelligence fashion, confuses the Chinese as to whether we have something secret that can do crazy things, and that maybe they should think twice about going after Taiwan.
1: And you can do that in two on its own, just systematic deception, you could without having yeah. a breakthrough.
0: Just you could. That would be bluffing. Yeah, yeah. It's a bluff. So it's either bluffing or it's deterrence. Like, de- you, de- well, they're both deterrence. Yeah, but in like the deterrence and the deterrence doctrine of the United States, um, you don't deter on a bluff. You you do strategic okay. deception. So the strategic deception and strategic deterrence. Strategic deception is you, you know, you know, confuse the enemy, right? You create, you know, inflatable tanks, right? That's strategic deception, um, which we did during, you know, World War II and all that sort of stuff. Then there's strategic deterrence, which is you actually have a real, you know, capability that it gives you overmatch in a, in a military conflict. And you want the adversary to know that that capability exists so that it actually deters them. In fact, there was a statement by a senior Space Force officer a few years ago that said, Deterrence doesn't happen in the black. Deterrence happens in the white. You actually have, the adversary has to know the thing exists for them to be worried about it, for them to change their plans and strategies accordingly, the way that you want them to change their plans and strategies. So if we want the Chinese to think second about going after Taiwan, we want them to believe that maybe we have this crazy thing. We don't want to give too much away about it because then they may be able to counter it, mitigate it, do, you know, create their own version potentially. Um, But that would be the category of explanations you would have to construct that says, this is all about some super secret military capability, and this whole operation is designed for the purposes of of strategic deterrence while retaining um, a, ma- uh, you know, a manner of, of ambiguity, with the downside consequence that you basically have to manipulate Congress into thinking, you know, maybe they're not human intelligence. You know, have senior politicians that go out and start speculating about aliens. The whole public becomes in a tizzy about are aliens here. So there's a downside to civic trust, you know, social stability if people start to believe the deception, right? And technically doing that kind of deception operation on American citizens is illegal. Like the nineteen seventies, church committee reforms um, made it explicitly legal to construct to, to conduct disinformation operations on the American public. So that's that's a high risk, it's a high risk, it's a high-risk approach, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, you asked me to construct a scenario, that would be the scenario I would, I would construct.
1: So if you say if there's a mix of two and three, systematic deception and it is real craft, but maybe a breakthrough technology, mm-hmm. you, you add that to the Tic Tac videos, mm. you can start to construct
2: that scenario. But at the same time, what, if, if you, as you said, it happens in the, in the white, not in the black. Like, mm-hmm. what does anyone get from this? Like, if, if you're trying to deter China, what are you actually seeing that could deter China?
0: I, I mean, again, you are asking me to kind of like put myself in the position of someone who is trying to plan this operation. It doesn't seem like a very well, well-coordinated, well well-planned operation, right? I mean, but maybe that's because people are not that competent, right, in general. Um, and it doesn't necessarily all make a whole lot of sense, right? Yeah. Um, but that's, that's the fundamental limitation of constructing a just-so story off of hypotheticals. Like, mm-hmm. I think you can't necessarily resolve this question by going down that road. You need to actually do tangible, you know, empirical investigation, take people into, you know— put them under oath, get documents. I mean, we're in a position right now where, you know, we have these videos that have come out. The government has acknowledged they're real. People have, you know, poured over them and, you know, tried to investigate, is it really anomalous? Are they not anomalous? Is this thing actually doing um, things that can't be, you know, conventionally explained? And, you know you really have to kind of get into the technical weeds to try yeah. to discern, is this, is this weird or is it not weird? I don't think this is dispositive one way or the other. There they are reasons for, for, for paying attention, but I think what this really comes down to is people have now claimed officially on the record and official channels that not only are there like high quality imagery and video of these objects, which you know would be very useful to see, right? If we can declassify them, but that we actually have Tangible materials, vehicles associated with them. Even David Rush said pilots, mm. right? So he went all the way there. He went from where we were before, which was speculating about are these figments of you know pilot's imagination, lens flare, you know a weird artifact of the of the of the of the camera sensor setup, to a disinformation operation. But now we're going to the point. Okay, you know there's hours of sworn testimony, corroborated testimony, alleged in official settings that says. We're way beyond videos. We're you know are like Lockheed Martin has stuff in a hangar, and this is the address, and this is this is the building. If you went there, Senator blah, and knocked on the door, and went you know two steps down, take the elevator, da da da, there'd be an alien vehicle right there. Like that's where we are now. Is that that's the level of specificity in the claims that have been made in official settings. That to me is like moving beyond speculating about some fuzzy video to like. Get someone in a position of authority to like go to that building, <laughs> knock on the door, and it's like a binary. Open it. Is, is there, there, is there an alien vehicle or not? Like That's a pretty clear, you know, no? Great. Done. We can like wash our hands of this whole thing, and maybe it's now we can figure out why people are constructing some weird deception operation behind, behind, uh, behind all this. Um, or, or, or there's something, you open the door and there's something there. In which case, now we're in a different conversation.
1: This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world leader in Bitcoin security and is the best way to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time to take your security more seriously because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. The Ledger suite of hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your own private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app, And honestly, it couldn't be easier. I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I absolutely love their products. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up today, we have our lead sponsor, Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. And their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy. And they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers and are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Danny and I met with the team in Canada and were super impressed with their values, which align with us, so they are a great fit for what Bitcoin did. We have now been working with Iris Energy for a number of months across the podcast, films, and events, and they're even sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. It's been really great to work with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. So if you want to find out more about them, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Also, today we have Leden. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Leden's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledden have a robust risk management strategy and always prioritize safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledden only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. Ledden also have a brand new product, Prime Loans. That allows private wealth clients to lend assets on their terms, and by locking in for a fixed term, they can earn even more interest. Leaden has a team of seasoned experts ready to work with you through the entire process to ensure your assets generates yield while protecting your principal. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledden.io, which is ledn.io Do you have a gut feel, like, based on everything you've seen, what do you think?
0: Yeah, so this is where... Like my, like I I try to be as rigorous and as Bayesian as I can about all things. And in this topic, you you have to kind of be very careful about how you ascribe evidence to different sources, especially in our current kind of epistemic environment where it's very hard to find reliable sources. And this topic is especially fraught because there are no, I would say, institutional markers of like high quality sources, right? The, the, The premise of the allegation is that the government themselves or some elements of the government are hiding this. So... You know, a government, the government itself, which is normally a marker, at least in certain settings of, like, prima facie credibility, a government report, you know, usually well written, maybe there's a lot of, like, editing that goes behind it. Oh, a government report should be, should be believable. That's sort of not, um, you know, necessarily entirely dispositive in this setting because the whole premise of the allegation that, that Grush alleges is that... This was being done illegally by elements within the government deceiving other aspects of the government. So of course, you know, the government investigated this. They would be deceived by elements that are looking to hide this from themselves. And then people that are outside that sort of apparatus of secrecy are speculating off of tidbits, whispers, rumors, right? Hints, back-channel off-record conversations, which creates a kind of miasma of rumor and potential, like, you know, um, reinforcing uh, fictions and disinformation that makes it very hard to discern what's true or not. So that's, like, the, for the premise. <laughs> like, so it makes it very hard for just the average person to, like, look at this topic and decide, is this a zero or 100%, right? Those, like, the Bayesian set, it's like, this is impossible, not a chance to, like, of, of course, 100%, these are these are aliens. Like, you got to find somewhere in the middle. You're probably not going to be zero or 100%. And I think I started at, like, 5%. I was a pretty hard-nosed physics person. It's like, the universe is kind of an empty place. I was all about, you know, the... the you know, the, the Fermi paradox and doing that whole, you know, this is just an empty universe and we just kind of had this lucky, you know, sort of chemical spark f- uh, 4 billion years ago. Yeah, um, now that I've actually looked into it and I've talked to people that are, you know, credible, serious people that are very close to this, I'm, I would say I'm more like 90%. Um, that this is... That's uh, a big shift. Yeah, I mean, I had to be a true Bayesian. It's like, look at evidence, update, and, you know, not rely on some preconception bias, not rely on some cultural taboo or, or a sort of um, cultural trope to sort of weigh or constrain how I update, right? I treat it as like any other topic. Um, like prima facie, it's very unlikely that someone that I'm on a jury uh, to, um, uh, to, you know, serve as, a, as their, um, you know, sort of civic uh, to, uh, trial participant committed a murder, right? I'm probably gonna go into that trial being like, prima facie, it's pretty rare for one person to mur- murder an- another person. You know, very unlikely that if the government just picks someone off the street and decided to charge them with murder, that they'd be guilty. So in general, you have a presumption of, 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 of innocence and it's the government's responsibility to present evidence and our system of government, our system of, uh, of jury trials is, a you know, juries drawn from the public look at the evidence presented by the prosecutors and the, and, and the defense, and they go, okay, have they met the reasonable you know, um, standard of evidence? Uh, and then convict. So you have to move from a position of probably implicitly very low prima facie, so what you might call a prior, that the person's guilty, you, know, to, you have to move up by looking at evidence. And you have to say, okay, 60, 80% people you know, debate what is like, you know, the, the reasonable standard of proof for, for reasonable doubt, beyond reasonable doubt. I'm pretty confident we've sort of tripped over that beyond reasonable doubt for me, just because I have like, but that's like my own epistemic journey. I do not have the same expectation that like the median consumer of available information is gonna necessarily have updated to the same level, right? Um, So that's, yeah. So I'm not here to convince people to to update to the same level that I've updated, but that's that's where I'm at right now.
2: So the one, place that I've always found it hard is um, if we've got these aliens that are from another solar system another galaxy or interdimensional or wherever, whatever they are, if they've come to Earth, why are they crash landing? Like they've got all this technology, mm. but we're recovering crashed ships. That, mm. that I find that hard to square.
1: But they can travel light years. They've got the technology to travel then light then years, which desert. we can't mm-hmm. do. And then and then they, uh, I don't know, have a engine failure.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's two assumptions in there that I would... Unpack, because I don't think they are they could be true, but they're embedded assumptions. One is that these non-human um, crafts did come from another solar system um, and that they are crashing, mm-hmm. right? They could just be gifted. They could just be given away. They could just be trash, right? It's like one-time use sort of things, right? Um, again, like these are all possibilities. I don't think we can necessarily assume... Gifted to humans. Yeah. Like a rival. Or you know, yeah. I mean, that's it, that's again. I'm I'm giving you the distribution of possibilities. The way you probably the way you need to investigate any any claim in any topic, but in particular here is you want to at what's the full partition of possibilities, and then you, and then you want to ascribe a prior to all those possibilities, and then look for empirical evidence, investigate, and then update how your you know your distribution of credences across those probabilities adjusts. And so, for example, if you're looking at the claim if you're in that scenario four, right? So we're sort of stipulating, we moved from this sort of hypothetical of scenarios one, two, and three. We're now looking at what does that scenario four category, non-human intelligence category, look like? How does that branch? Because that could branch in many, many different ways. And that gets to your exact question. Um, so I think the four kind of canonical ways you can branch scenario four is like a branching tree. Like we're now in scenario four, we're splitting for scenario four out, non-human technology scenario. Um, the four, I think, canonical explanation or... Um, Branches would be the traditional one, right? These are non-human technologies from another solar system that evolved in a similar fashion to us on a different star system, traveled here, um, uh, you know, using either known or unknown you know, means of propulsion in physics to get here another here. That you can investigate itself in many different ways, but that's like one category. Another category is they're not from a different place; they actually have been around planet Earth. They actually. You know from planet Earth, maybe they were the result of technology developed by civilizations that predated modern human civilization, and they just stuck around. Maybe it was a prehistory, early technologically advanced civilization that had some cataclysm or whatever, and you know got wiped out, or maybe most of them left, a few of them stuck around, and this is the technology that we 're seeing they 're actually indigenous to earth they 're not extraterrestrial. they are terrestrial, just of a different civilization, a different potential origin um, on Earth. Another, again, like you got to think about the radical, radical options, right? (laughs) If you want to like not take anything for granted, is time travel, right? That these represent, um, you know, future humans or future non-humans that are coming to our timeline now for whatever reason, and that's the technology. That's like the origin, right? Um, Whether whether time travel is physically possible, whether it's even logically consistent, whole different story. But that is like. One initial starting condition that you could that you could consider the fourth, and this is probably the most amorphous is just like what kind of is currently gone under the rubric of like interdimensional but it's it's somewhat of a loose term of art because in physics like a dimensions is a degree of freedom in a manifold, um, but I think what it that concept alludes to is that um you know, our normal three plus one space-time manifold that we interact with that we've been biologically conditioned to um, perceive, you know, isn't the full story of physical reality and that uh, there may be other intelligences that um, exist or can access um, other degrees of freedom in physical space that we don't have easy access to and that, you know, they're entering and exiting from that, um, from that degree of freedom that we don't, that we don't currently um, understand. Those are the four, right? And so each of those four I would say it's a crapshoot, right? It's like, I have no, we have no evidence right now, as far as I've, I'm aware of, that allows you to, like, you know, discern which of ones of those is more likely. And that's, you're getting into more sci-fi speculation. And then in each one of them, you know, when you're doing this, like, serious, what I would call it, because, like, you want to treat this seriously and not try to be dismissive of it, you want to look at, okay, what do we know with decent high credence about physics that, like, either, you know, makes certain types of things less likely than other types of things. That's very difficult to do in this whole discussion because like, I think a pretty safe assumption that you can have um, in analyzing the nature of non-human technology is that they probably have access to physics, knowledge of physics, that we don't have, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe they don't, but I would say most likely they do, right? And to me- the way I always
1: play with that one is I think about, you know, the advancements we've had in technology over the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. We've gone, I mean, uh, just my lifetime, you know, we've gone from no internet to supercomputers here. Mm -hmm. That's what we have, right? And so... The timeline of uh, of any civilization can be super long. So where will we be in just a thousand years? And Mm -hmm. you know we're not on the same timeline as them. It's not like the spark of life happened exactly the same time. So this could be technology that's developed over tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. They most likely have much more advanced technology than us. That's to me, that's just uh, a certainty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these breakthroughs will be possible.
0: Yeah, and that's I think of one of the like most um, I'd say rigorous places to start in doing this analysis is because we probably do believe that um, physics is the fundamental um, kind of boundary constraint for possible technology. And so every new physics advance unlocks a new possible technology set. And we kind of believe, this is maybe more philosophical, but that there's you know some fundamental set of physics that you know any observer can ever figure out. So once you've figured out all the possible physics that you can figure out, that basically binds the space of possible technologies you can invent And then that kind of sets, like, a limit. If you think about, like, an S-curve of, like, you know, Homo sapiens now become technologically um, advanced, start doing physics experiments, maybe in a few hundred years, maybe a few thousand years, which is a blink in cosmic time, to figure out all the rules of possible physics, and then they sort of taper off, right? Whatever is physically um, possible, uh, you know, civilization eventually figures out. And therefore, any civilization in the universe eventually kind of gets to the same level, right? Where everyone kind of has the same the same technology toolkit, there's no competitive advantage anymore. Everyone's just kind of like, yeah, this is where we are. You're kind of now a member of the cosmic club. Like we're, we've all figured out everything we could possibly figure out. And in that sense, almost like progress kind of stops, right? Because everyone just is like at the maximal possible level of technology. It might be impossibly advanced. You might not be able to imagine it, but it is, there's probably a limit there. And then everyone that ever kind of survives to get to that level, doesn't blow themselves up, kind of settles out at that level. And you can imagine like, you know if you're now at that level whatever that perspective looks like to you you're probably interested about like what new members that's like the only most interesting thing would be the new members to the club right and you might be and, and this is more speculative right this is like super speculative but i find it interesting is to think about well if you're if you're in an ecosystem where Every civilization is essentially maximally advantaged with respect to each other. There's no like, mutual advantage. there's no competition, right? No one can get a leg up on the other. There's no like, need to compete. So the only really differentiations are essentially like inherited cultural disposition, like cultural dispositions, or some whatever weird artifacts that they create that just like, keep them from getting bored. The only source of novelty might be like new potential aspirants to the club, yeah. right? There are a bunch of old, old, stodgy people that've been in the universe for a few billion years, and then every once in a while, like a new sprightly, you know, aspirant kind of knocks on the door and says, "Hey, can I be a member of your club?" And well, they might be, might be like some might be welcoming, others might be hesitant because, like, well, we're a bunch of monkeys with nuclear weapons. Like, they figure this out. Like, you know, maybe there's like we, we want to, you know, we want to like, not just admit them; we want to like check them out. And yeah. maybe maybe some might want to block. Or guide or guard or guide. Exactly. This is this is the like this would be like what you might call like cosmic political sociology speculation, right? <laughs> Which I find <laughs> find interesting. But you know, that is sort of the latent um sort of set of analysis you'd have to give if you're trying to explain, like, well, why are they here? Right? Yeah, the the whole branch of those possible explanations.
2: So that kind of gets into something we've spoken about before in the past, where you said there may have been like a correlation between Um, the frequency of these events and us kind of discovering nuclear weapons.
0: I mean, that has been officially um, and semi-officially alleged is that, you know, the uptick happened to coincide with the detonation of nuclear weapons, and that there was a lot of observations of weird things around the, you know, Los Alamos test sites in Nevada, and that these things have been a strong correlation over history of interacting with our nuclear weapons. You know, official reports that even Congressman Gallagher brought up in Congress about the Maelstrom incident where, you know, nuclear weapons, um, you know, launch facility silo in the bunker basically had all 12 missiles go offline. And the security guards- What was that? It's like 1980, I believe. No, maybe 1960. I forget the exact time. Um, Where was that? Uh, Maelstrom, North Dakota, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, this has been like one of the more well-reported kind of incidents, officially documented, of um, the uh, security guards on the top, on the surface, basically called down and said, like, there's a weird glowing orb above us. Um, yeah, and... Right, uh, hold on, here we go. Whatever the mysterious lights in
1: the sky were, they seem to have an interest in our nukes. One of the more out-of-the-ordinary press conferences held in Washington this week consisted of a former Air Force personnel testifying the existence of UFOs and their ability to neutralize American and Russian nuclear missiles. Blah, 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 blah. blah. Well, okay. Uh,
2: It's what Neil uh, Neil was telling us about something similar to this. Yeah, the
1: Rendleson Forest one Neil was talking about. Um, Robert Jameson, a retired USAF nuclear missile targeting officer, told of several occasions of having to go out and restart missiles that had been deactivated after UFOs were sighted nearby. How credible is this?
0: I mean, this is credible as the firsthand reports and documentation. People have you know, come out and said publicly they were involved in the, you know, the incident investigation. Engineers went out to test the missiles again, found nothing wrong with them. Congressman asked the Pentagon to investigate this. They owe him a get back. I mean, you we saw- know as much as it is very likely a real incident yeah. There's many witnesses that said, we saw these things and the nukes went off. And the government was like, well, this is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, again, that's as far as it goes. Huh. And this is this has been, there's a whole book called UFOs and Nukes. It was written by a researcher who went, you know, and collected these reports from former, um, you know, what they call missileers, both in the U.S. and I think even some reports out of the Soviet Union, they reported similar things happening around their nukes. Even some nukes may have been turned on. Um, and people have speculated this was a way of kind of like taking the, you know, grenade out of the, the baby's hands or a way of demonstrating to us that we're playing with fire. Um,
1: yeah, because it's, it's almost like they see us like teenagers have discovered drugs. Mm-hmm. We want to guide them away from it.
0: I mean, it was a serious topic. It was enough to motivate, um, you know, I think an element of a start treaty between the U.S. and Soviet Union back in the 70s that basically was about how do we, you know, prevent, um invertent detection inadvertent misidentification of anomalous objects. To trigger nuclear launches, right? We were on, we were on sort of mutual, like, hair triggers. You know, we had, we had, we dodged many bullets in the Cold War of a flock of birds being misperceived uh, by an early warning radar system as a potential ICBM incoming and that triggering things up to the point where someone had to make a decision of, like, wait, this doesn't seem right. I shouldn't actually launch. And we got pretty close a few times during the, during the Cold War. We're like, yeah, we, a few people making a prudent decision saved the world from nuclear annihilation. So if you are, you know, an alien civilization looking at this, you're like, these are, these are toddlers playing with knives. Like we need to, you know, we need to help let them know. Right? I mean, that's speculation. But that, that is, that I think is an obvious point of, of focus. If you're national security minded, you're like, well, this is a problem because if we don't know why this is happening, right? Maybe it's benign, maybe it's not. I don't know. It's probably, it probably shouldn't be something we just ignore would be kind of my starting point.
1: Yeah, and and then at a time where we've got uh, war in uh, Eastern Europe Mm -hmm. and threats of the use of nuclear weapons is happening at a time where we've got this kind of increased chatter, talk about aliens.
0: Hmm. Well, there's... Yeah, the the, the timing is one of the things I think about a lot, which is, like, why now? Um, if, If you go by David Grush's you know, reported allegations in his, in his words, he says that this started basically in earnest after after World War II, and that there was like a sub-Rosa, you know, aspect of the Cold War um, between US and Russia, mainly about who can figure out how this stuff works. Because the lesson of World War II was that whoever has fundamentally a physics advantage has a technology advantage, therefore has a strategic advantage. Like physics won World War II, right? That's basically mm-hmm. what was the lesson. And so, um, the lesson that most nations would draw from that was like, we need to make sure we understand physics more than our adversaries. And if you have objects either in your possession or that you're observing that can give you clues to new physics, that would be among the most important strategic um, you know, issues to investigate and therefore probably the most important secret to keep. right? Because the lesson of World War II was that nuclear weapons are extremely secret. We have an entire separate apparatus of secrecy just for nuclear weapons. It started you know, as an entirely separate area, we still have it, right? So by assumption or by analogy, if this was the locus of new physics research, just like nuclear physics became the locus for nuclear weapons, which we then enshrouded an entirely separate classification apparatus, maybe you would do the same. Maybe you would have an entirely separate compartmented apparatus just to protect this potential new physics that could give you a strategic advantage. Or might be so dangerous that you just don't want it to let out into the wild, right? There just might be technologies in that Pandora's box of discovery that you bring them out of the box and they blow you up. And and you have to be at a certain level of civilization. You have to be mature enough to to take your hand in that box. And, you know, maybe the lesson nukes was that we dipped our hand in the box. Maybe we were like, it's the jury's out, right? We haven't blown ourselves up yet, but we had close calls.
1: Well, look, my education on this uh, <laughs> recently for the trailer for Oppenheimer was mm-hmm. that when they first started testing this, the nuclear weapons, they didn't know if they were gonna just blow up the world.
0: I mean, that's, yeah, it's a little bit apocryphal, but yeah, there was, there was a true historical exchange where they were doing the calculations to figure out whether the, um, the ignition heat would be enough to trigger a chain reaction in the atmosphere. Um, and they did the numbers, and they said it was extremely unlikely. Um, but that has always been, you know, you're relying on your understanding of physics and math to make the determination, right? Listen, you are you're, you're in uncharted territory, essentially doing an experiment on fundamental f- aspects of reality that you don't quite know how they're going to unfold until you do the experiment. You've got the math, but press the button. It's so like
1: the Large Hydron Collider. They're like, "Well, we, will we create a black hole yeah. in- that swallows up the Earth?
0: I mean, again, they did the math, and they realized that, you know, yes, we'll create a little microscopic black hole, but there's something called Hawking Radiation, where the virtual particles on the boundary take energy away, so you actually get what's called black hole evaporation. And the, va- the characteristic evaporation time is so quick that in, like, basically plank time, like 10 to the minus 25, 10 to the minus 30 seconds, the black holes just evaporate into virtual pair of particles. Um, So you don't get Uh, this- Can
1: we just take a moment to to recognize how impressive (laughs) that I mentioned that and you knew the exact answer.
0: I mean, I'm a huge physics nerd. I told you, like I, this is why I paint. So if this is like one motivation that really draws my attention to UAPs as a topic is the physics part of it. Because one of my overarching like intellectual, like through lines from my, you you know, since I was a teenager, is like, what is the nature of reality, right? And so everyone thinks about little green men and spaceships, but I actually think about, well, someone might have figured something out that we haven't figured out. And that's like essentially proof of concept that we could like bootstrap ourselves for. Instead of, you know, wandering around in the darkness waiting for, you know, someone to figure out quantum gravity, we've kind of been stalled since 1970s with our physics research. Um, Maybe intentionally, maybe not. That's a whole separate conversation um, that might relate to the UAP stuff. the, the fact is we are making radical advances in our fundamental understanding of reality. And civilization dramatically benefited from that, right? This isn't just like in some you know, abstract, oh, wouldn't it be nice to know how things really are? It's like human civilization is directly downstream of our knowledge of physics. But right? we figured out you know, how uh, like electromagnetism works. We get generators, we get electrification, we get like in modern industrial civilization, we figured out you know, chemistry, we can create you know, explosives, we can, create, we can fix nitrogen, we can feed an extra several billion people on the planet. And then we figured out quantum mechanics, uh, the structure uh, and like the computational structure of the universe with um, mainly Turing and von Neumann and a few other researchers, we figured out we can create computers and we can build computers and computers can do crazy things for us. We get integrated circuits. We get modern technological civilization. We figured out nuclear physics, we create nuclear power, we create nuclear weapons. So it's like, I think... What's next? Well, this is the key point. Like we are, I think our modern culture, because we haven't really since 1970s, we haven't Um, really progress that fast or that far in our fundamental physics knowledge, we've kind of forgotten that lesson that if you were alive in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, would have been just like obvious to you that like, of course, the physicists are figuring out new things. And then 10 or 15 years later, like the world changes. Right? And, and that was just like an embedded expectation that stopped in the 70s. And then now in the 2020s, we've sort of forgotten that that's, that's kind of the deal, right? Like you need to figure out new physics in order to fundamentally bootstrap your civilization. So we're looking at AI um, and like a quick parenthetical, like I, I find it interesting that as like a sociological observation, the idea of like an emergent superintelligent AI that like, um, rapidly um, self improves and is misaligned with um, sort of human uh, goals and value systems takes over and destroys us. Right, that was like a sci-fi plot niche subculture coming out of the Silicon Valley and not effective altruism movement um, considered as like this super speculative sci-fi scenario. The past six months post uh, ChatGPT and the explosive application growth of, of these technologies from generative AI is like now a serious topic of conversation in pol- policy discourse among major capitals, right? Elon Musk went to Beijing and his like pitch to them was, you know, an, a, an artificial general intelligence is the biggest, most plausible threat to the CCP's rule. So maybe he was like, you know, playing to an audience there because that's their biggest worry is being toppled from power. So you know but he's using that as a serious like it, like talking point in like his engagement with chinese like leadership right which shows you how quickly like the Overton window moved from what was like fringe niche absurd topic of analysis and serious discourse like super intelligent ai taking over the world like you're crazy like go off and don't bother me i'm a serious person to now like there was like a moment of like anxiety, like, is, do we sneer at this? Do we snicker? But then look at the growth curves, and if you actually look at the growth curve, it's kind of like a little concerning, like, oh, okay. And now policymakers get briefed, and you know things get moved along in a semi-official manner. And now it's becoming like a serious topic, like, how do we make sure we have like a global governance regime put in place to regulate access to these hardware, control these foundation models, you know, regulate these things on a supranational basis? It's like a very serious topic of like. Like pressing an urgent need in most major capitals now.
1: FYI, I think it's a waste of time. A bit like yeah. uh, I, I came to the conclusion too late that uh, trying to lock down to prevent a pandemic is pointless because mm-hmm. the, the the virus exists. It's out. You know, the cat's out of the bag. I mean, mm. I, I don't think you can stop AI even with regulation because there will be an AI that will escape.
0: I mean, that's a whole different. We have a whole separate podcast on that because yeah, we'll I do, do focus that. a lot on that. Um, it's it actually interesting to the Bitcoin folk, folks. Um, is that, uh, you know, it is an interesting test case for the full stack of modern, most advanced technology goes from, you know, hardware, semiconductor manufacturing to infrastructure platforms that run the most of the global internet to most of the major, say, platforms for service providers. So basically, like, you know, you've got NVIDIA, TSMC, et cetera, hardware manufacturers. You've got platforms, AWS, Azure, IBM Cloud, Google, et cetera. Then you've got the sort of... um, the, the, like the, the model developers, OpenAI, um, Anthropic, um, the other ones, uh, Inflection, is a bunch of like foundation model developers. And then like the proliferation of, of like you know platform developers and what you're, I mean, like uh, applications and APIs and, and user consumer services. And there's a, you know, you look at, that's a whole chain of technology stack that if you're trying to, you know, keep it in the box, you need to have like tight regulation. Um, and you can imagine, there's actually been policy papers put out to enforce um, like KYC on the cloud and on chips. So we put in place a whole export control surveillance regime on high-end chips, motivated principally about China, but it's very easy to apply that same framework to you know, foundation for, for say GPUs, all the way up the stack for delivering services over, over cloud. But that's, a, that's an AI sidebar. Back to like the key analogy I was making was, I think that should be a lesson that we draw in thinking about the UAP topic was something can go from like the tail, fringe, niche thing, and quickly become a very pressing topic of policy discourse, right? I think we saw something similar with the coronavirus, right? Where if you were, you know, just a lay observer of reports out of, you know, Wuhan in January, 2020, you know, you were facing this sort of choice. Do I I sneer at the people that are alarmist about a global pandemic, or do I like go to Costco and load up the truck? Right. like, And, 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 you know, you know, up until that point, you know, it would have been somewhat rational to say, this is not likely to be a global pandemic because we haven't had a global pandemic in a hundred years. It's very unlikely for any given report of some virus to turn into a global pandemic. We've saw Ebola, we saw a bunch of these things that were like false alarms, whatever. So your rational stance would have been to dismiss it. The person who is more conspiratorial minded, maybe more paranoid, maybe more on a hair trigger went, no, I'm going to Costco. Right. Or someone who maybe had access to Maybe more niche insights, say intelligence reports about the growth, the growth rate that was underreported, etc., would have moved as well. So I think that's a similar. Again, they're not all entirely analogous, but I think those are cautionary tales we should think about when, when applying, you know, uh, our analytical lens to the UAP topic. And you should look for markers, like sort of indicators that this is moving along that similar trajectory, right? That it's moving from the fringe, in it's. It, the Orbiton window is shifting officially.
1: So that movement you made from kind of 5% mm-hmm. chance to 90% chance, that very significant uh, shift, what were the key things that made you go, huh, okay, mm-hmm. I'm, I think about this differently now?
0: It was It was probably a gradual process with a few step functions. I would say, and it's hard for me to go back and reconstruct it, but if I would say like, The one that probably made the most um, like relative difference to me was a book I read by journalist Ross Coulthart called In Plain Sight. And it's probably the most serious investigative journalist treatment of the subject that I've read. Um, And he's a serious journalist from Australia, was like part of their 60 Minutes flagship um, uh, sort of news program. As a result of that, he had a career where he did lots of stories and reporting on the military intelligence. so he's had contacts and connections and he just was like I'm curious about this so I'm not going to let like you know the editorial stigma kind of dissuade me from like you know digging under the rock and so we did because he had the sources his sources told him you know off the record there's something here you should like you know don't let go of this story like there's something to look at here and so we did and he wrote this book and he got I think among the more impressive kind of detailed um, on the record statements and one in particular that stuck out to me was um, an on-the-record statement made by a senior naval science and technology officer named Nat Kovitz, who was dying, and basically told him after several months of like, them developing rapport, you know, Ross kind of asked him you know, the, the question, like, did, were you ever aware of you know, U.S. government programs to retrieve or reverse engineer non-human technology? And he said, yes, don't talk, don't talk to me more, anymore about it. He put that in the book. Uh, and then subsequent, he has reported that Nat Kovitz, before he died, gave him a bunch of other names of people in these programs um, that, you know, led him ultimately to David Rush as well. Um, and so that is, it's kind of an, an aggregation of things, but again, it's all first-hand hearsay. So, yeah. I mean, I, I've held clearances in the past, but I'll tell you right now, I have not worked on these reverse engineering programs. I don't have firsthand accounts. That's why I'm 90%, not 100%. So until I Till the government comes out and shows me the things, I'm not gonna be 100%.
1: There is right? no present physical observed evidence that we can see. There is hearsay and...
0: I mean, I mean, again, a picture will be, people will debate a picture too. People will debate a government statement. People will always find some reason to doubt whatever level of evidence is meeting some threshold for the median, okay, the median so observer.
1: So what about the Tic Tac video? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, David Grush, you know, in his official position as the UAP task force was, that was one of the reports that they investigated and he, yeah.
1: Can you explain it to me? Because like, okay, mm-hmm. we're seeing something, but I can't tell the speed. That's all I'm seeing is a white dot on the
2: screen. So I think it's better if we have the audio too, because you can hear the pilots talking it
0: through.
1: Mm-hmm. I saw this, on, I'm pretty sure I saw it on Rogan.
0: Yeah, I mean, this one's been poured over, you know, ad infinitum.
2: There's a whole fleet of them, look on the ASA. My gosh we are all going against the wind. The wind's 120
1: knots from the west. Don't that
2: thing, dude. That's not around us, though, is it? It's not. I do have an LNS, dude. Well, if there's like, another thing, thing, it's rotating. So this, I'm just going to pause it. Is this where we have like the transmedium craft?
0: Well, let me take two things, right? So what you just saw there, I believe, was the FLIR camera footage from, um, I think it was an F-16. I could be wrong on that. I haven't, don't remember all the case details, but um, David Fravor and his wingman um, were doing their workups. Um, uh, they had been sort of tasked to go investigate this radar return uh, that, uh, was being seen by some of the fleet. So they, you know, redirected themselves to go look at this, you know, object that had, that had been tasked to look at. When they got there, they saw this tic-tac looking object hovering, kind of bouncing off like a ping pong a little bit just above the water. The water was a little bit disturbed. David Fravor comes in and tries to, you know, do a maneuver to investigate it closely. The tic-tac kind of does this like counter counter move, like circles around and then like pops off like a gun, like mm-hmm. a bullet, and just, just disappears and shows up at their, um, their cap point, I think like 60 miles away. That was like the initial encounter. They were turned to the, to, the, to the aircraft carrier. Then I think another another sortie was launched, other pilots, and they said, yeah, go out and try to take a picture or try to get a video. And that's where they got this video, was, okay. was you know, someone going out and trying to find it again on radar. Yeah, it's, I did hear on
2: a podcast, um, I think someone was describing, they like go out and, and run circuits, right? Um, and mm-hmm. when they're on these, circuits, they used to see them almost daily, apparently.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a separate kind of uh, um, set of observations from people who have come out, you know, publicly. Um, uh, Ryan, oh God, now I'm blanking on his name. His name is, uh, his, his Twitter handle is Uncertain Vector. Um... But uh, he's another um, a senior naval pilot. He actually now has like an association you know, going to Congress just on aviation flight security to help you know, make it like less of a taboo for airline pilots and other pilots to report seeing these objects, um, which there is like a strong pilot, you know, taboo and punishment if you do that in the commercial aviation sector now. Um, but he went up and they, they reported seeing these all the time. Mm. You know, and the radar operators would see these things coming from 80,000 feet to sea level, assuming you know, in like half a second, they would see swarms of these objects on the radar. Um, it's kind of a it's kind of an open secret if you talk to folks in the military but they see these things all the time. As you're reporting, like in almost every domain, and that's why the US that's why the US Congress, when they put in place these these escalating provisions starting in FY 2022 National Defense Authorization Act to the FY 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, um, you know, very explicit language. Like dialing up the heat on the Pentagon and the Defense Department and the and the intelligence community, and they shifted the language from unidentified aerial phenomenon to unidentified anomalous phenomenon. And in the statutory language, which going back to like my analogy of like in the clearing, like where you you know where you're on safe epistemic ground, just read what has been already passed in law. Mm-hmm. Just look at the language in the you know the policy guidance that the Congress has given the authorizations to the Pentagon, the intelligence community that have been, that were unanimous, yeah, or unanimously approved by, you know, very sensitive committees in Congress and passed and now are in force, they have very explicit language. If you just read the language, I think your eyes would open, right? And so that's like one of the first indicators, as I mentioned, like the which you're shifting was the shift from unidentified aerial phenomenon, which was like the rebranded term for UFOs, because they didn't want the same sort of baggage to, to carry over, then they said, "Well, actually, we're seeing these things not just in the air. We're seeing them in space. We're seeing them in, you know, in the ocean. So, the term shifted to unidentified anomalous phenomenon, specifically to categorize the transmedium aspect of the observed behavior—things moving from water to air to space and back—and that is that is the characteristic anomalous um, performance characteristic that is now officially being investigated by, you know, the Pentagon. They have an office." That's this is their job. And Congress just now got them fully funded to do this job. So they're picking up something
2: on underwater radar as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, they have their own name, like, um, you know, USO's, Underwater um, Undersurface Objects. Hmm.
1: Uh, The fact that they keep getting spotted off the coast of the US pushes me to the idea, I wonder if this is a uh, a physics advancement within the US government, Mm. because it's not like it's happening in Australia, India, UK?
0: Well, I mean, there have been reports globally. And in fact, uh, if you believe Sean Kirkpatrick, who is the director of um, this office, Arrow, he's a senior uh, intelligence officer, scientist, PhD. His job is to run Arrow. and he is collecting global reports from our global sensor apparatus, right? So the U.S. government has a massive global surveillance yeah. system well. you, know, you can imagine, space, everything. We can see lots of things. Um, and um, he is now put in place where he can collect what we're seeing from all these different sensor systems. That was one of the main objectives of the people that were pushing for this to sort of process to stand up was getting the data coming out of all these different sensor systems, say space-based collection systems, underwater space uh, collection systems, radar systems, um, you know, pilot reports, which were you know, in their own very compartmented silos, to put those into one place, looking at the raw like, radar track logs to see you know, what maybe was not classified. Because the way we do these detections is, you, know, you see lots of things, right? The radar picks up lots of things in the raw returns. So we have like specific classifiers. Things like like AI um, signatures that say this is what an ICBM looks like. This is what a MIG looks like. And so it only cues or alerts to a human operator when it sees an object that's been sort of pre-categorized as something of interest to the military. We don't have. We haven't had classifiers built for these things. At least that's maybe we do. Maybe we don't. But the allegation is that you know there's a lot of things maybe. Um, that were observed but maybe not officially categorized. And so what he has done, apparently, is create classifiers specific for these signatures to then look across all these different domains to identify these anomalies to do, to do his investigation. And they've seen them around the world. He's had a, had okay. a map where he sees them all. And of course, there's always been anecdotal firsthand you know, reports of people seeing weird things around the world. China also stood up their own UAP thing in their translation, it kind of refers to drones, and there's always like a geopolitical potential, you know, double on d- double meaning there, where they're, they they want to know what U.S. drones might be flying in their airspace. But yeah, you know, the the historical legacy that the Russians have also had serious programs on this has been pretty well pretty well documented as well. Um, so, what do you think these are? Um, Oh, well, now you're just jumping back to the kind of, like, where in that for extraterrestrial, tempestrial, uh, ultra-terrestrial... Well,
1: firstly, do you think these uh, are real objects and these were really photographs? This isn't some
0: psyop. uh, Well, these are definitely real objects. The question is, are they um, non-human technology, right? Yeah. Um, Because I can't... What's the context here?
1: Like, uh, that's the ocean. That looks like a tiny little speck. What's the size of it? I can't figure it... I can't tell anything. Is that a... Is it like the size of a fighter jet?
0: Yeah, I I don't think you can draw decent inferences from these videos, would be like my bottom line. Like, I I don't think I can give you a claim and then substantiate that claim using these YouTube videos. (laughs) I don't think that's going to be epistemically satisfying to you or anyone else who's listening, right? Um, They are a starting point for, you know, piquing curiosity. And then um, looking at what else is happening in the official sphere to say, okay, is there something here that is, you know, an indicator of this, that these things might be um, like truly anomalous, and looking at firsthand witness testimony that you ascribe maybe not one hundred percent credence to. But if you listen to what David Grush said, is that he investigated these incidents officially, and you know the Tic Tac thing, he says definitively was anomalous, not human technology. Now he didn't just he didn't explain how he arrived at that conclusion, mm-hmm. but he made that conclusion public, in a pretty definitive manner. Now. Yeah. He's a person that I ascribe kind of prima facie credibility to, but I don't believe everything he says, but I see that as something that I didn't hear before that, you know, moves my needle for that particular event up. Okay. Right. And okay. so that's, that's, that's how, to, how how I reason. So, you know, these other events, I think we're at, we're at, we're at a point where, you know, fundamentally like the more salient top, the question is, does Lockheed have the thing in the bunker? Right. Like Yes or no, because apparently the Senate, there's hours of transcripts in the SCIF, in Capitol Hill, in the safe, that have all the program details on paper. We need to see them. And well, well, this is the delicate thing. This is why it's, a, it's I think, a very tricky subject, because I think when we started this conversation, I talked about like the, the nesting dolls of the secrecy is that some of those things we do, a lot of things we do, we do for a good reason. Like you don't want the Chinese to know the secret capabilities we have or the programs we're running. Um, and so the tricky part of that, if those legitimate programs that we want to keep secret were being part of them were being used illegally as cover for these UAP-related activities, it presents a tricky. It's it's difficult to disclose that part without burning the legitimate capability right? like, And in fact, the people doing the like illegal a, a part probably did that intentionally. It's like a shield. It's like a, using a human shield. Right? It's, like, it's like it's hard to hit them without hitting this thing that you don't want to hit, right? So that's the position I think the Senate is in right now is they're now aware that these um, allegations are very credible, not just David Grush, but multiple other witnesses from these programs have allegedly come forward to them, given very specific testimony um, in classified settings to them that say, yeah, this is real, and you should get to the bottom of it. This is why you're seeing these legislative maneuvers be much more aggressive year over year, and it's why Senator Schumer had just come out. Um, Because I think now this is getting to the point where enough of the Senate has now read these transcripts and has heard from these witnesses that they can't put this in the box. They know this can't be kept in the box. And so now it's becoming less a matter of like... um, you know, the DOD doing this technical investigation and writing these reports for the next few years and more a matter of, okay, how do we put in place a political framework to allow this to come out in a controlled, deliberative manner that doesn't burn the critical act, the critical capabilities that we don't wanna burn. And that's the reason why I think what Senator Schumer just announced yesterday in the New York Times article reported on is this commission, this nine-member commission who will be appointed by Biden within, 30, within 300 days of the NDAA passing at the end of this year. Um, and their job will be to do a private inventory of all the UAP stuff in, in the inventory and then decide that panel will have the authority to declassify selectively information. So they will be able to, say, get all of the documents in, say, that SAP about Chinese hypersonic missiles, whatever it is, and they go all the Chinese hypersonic stuff stays in the box, all the illegal UAP stuff, some of it, maybe we'll declassify. That is what the, that's what they're setting up now. That's the purpose of that. Um, that's why that Schumer, and he's a Senate Majority Leader, nothing he does is done without, you know, clearance from the White House. And you can imagine the timeline here is gonna be very tricky, Twenty twenty four is campaign season. Yeah. Um, and I draw attention to Senator, I mean, uh, Representative Mike Gallagher, Um, Again, pay attention to what these people are saying, like people that otherwise have other things to do, right? Like Marco Rubio, Senator Gillibrand, Mark Warner, um, uh, uh, Mike Gallagher in particular, I find very interesting because he is PhD military intelligence officer. Um, He was tapped to be the chair of the Senate Select Committee on China, which is like, you know, a very important position. Gives him a lot of like potential political juice. He's, I think, very ambitious politically. He might run for president in 2028. Um, He's from Wisconsin, kind of a moderate Republican, you know, got all the right, checks all those boxes, right? He went on the Pat McAfee syndicated like sports talk show uh, like two weeks ago. And it was like a 40, 45 minute interview it was kind of, you know, somewhat informal with a bunch of ex-NFL players and they talk about the draft, whatever. They bring him on. It's a 45-minute interview. All he talks about is UAPs. Huh. And his whole objective in that conversation was to try to normalize the subject with the blue-collar audience, right? It was very strategic. And I, you put it in the context of other statements made by Marco Rubio. Like, they're trying to normalize this discussion, the public discourse. They're trying to, you know, inch it along slowly, but make it, you know, a gradual... A gradual well, it's the opposite
1: of what they did when they tried to make it a laugh, like a joke.
0: This, Yeah, which is very curious, yeah. isn't it? Right, the, Like, all the traditional assumptions about, well, they'll just try to poo-poo it, put it back in the box, reject it, you know, they're doing the exact opposite, right? <laughs> like, the senators and the representatives are, like, holding themselves back, <laughs> it seems, from saying what they really want to say, which is that, like, in fact, just yesterday or today, Representative Gallagher just kind of, like, threw off the pretense because uh, some reporter was asking about UAPs, UAPs, and he's like, UAP talk, UAP tech. let's just talk and say what it is. It's aliens. We're talking about aliens. That's what he said. That was his quote, right? <sighs> this, is, this is a guy who has a portfolio of, you know, strategic competition with China. He's got a lot of things on his plate. He's made this a focus of his. He's introduced legislation. If you actually look at the, 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 the legislative text, I don't think this will actually make it, make it in, but similar language will probably make it in as we go through kind of this whole messy sausage making of the current package of intelligence and and, uh, defense authorization bills. But in in, in um, in the most recent sort of statutory language that he introduced and a few other folks introduced on the Senate side, is like, it is the sense of Congress that in order to prevent technology surprise from foreign adversaries, the US government must open up and maintain broader awareness of quote, historical exotic technology antecedents. And and another part of his different uh, bill, which, you know, historical, uh, it was actually historical exotic technology antecedents previously provided by the federal government for research and development purposes. That language was put in there explicitly because, at least what I've heard, um, there is uh, intense resentment, not only by other defense contractors, but really big tech, that they have been cut out, right? So if you can imagine the political economy of this whole Mm. thing which is again, this is me speculating a bit, but I think it's semi-informed speculation, is um, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, these def- big defense contractors, you know, they, they used to be the big dogs in DC, right? They used to get what they always wanted, you know, whether the fundraising kind of revolving door sort of thing. They were the big heavyweights, especially throughout the Cold War. What's really changed in the past 10, 20 years, and it's really accelerated the past five years, especially now with AI, is the political heavyweights are now big tech, Google, Nvidia, Apple, Microsoft, etc. cetera, um, Intel. And they have been making the argument to the, to the White House and to the Senate that they are, you know, at the forefront of strategic technology, leading this technology competition with China, that they're the ones that are, you know, essential to national security and they are cut out from this this entire world of potentially strategic advanced technology. And that, you know, the allegation is that Say you know, Lockheed has been having this thing in this you know, secret program, but they haven't made much progress because you know, it's been so compartmented that only a few engineers get access to it. They try to figure it out. They can't, they stall. They go put, put it back for 10 years until we figure some more advanced science out. We try it again. So these science, the science, the big tech, um, I think, is like lobbying and saying, like, give us access to this. We've got the best and brightest now. Like, we, we're on the front, at the front lines of technology. Silicon Valley has got all the, all the brightest minds, and yet we're entirely blocked out from this DC, you know, DoD world. And that's how I sort of interpret the sense of Congress language, is that maybe they don't wanna disclose everything to the public, but there's a clear political economy, um, I think, dynamic where, there's other, force, uh, there's other forces at play that previously were able to keep it contained. Now there's like big money on the line, big political interests on the line that have the juice to sort of potentially pry it open. And that, if you're looking for like the most salient explanation for why now, it's that. It's that they, big tech got wind. They now have the political juice. And, you know, the Senate is, you know respecting a different viewpoint than necessarily the law Lock, had. So that is, I think, the really interesting thing. One of the pieces of the legislation that's in there is it explicitly requires, if, it, if this goes through in the National Defense Authorization Act, requires that um, you know, any contractor or government program that has been uh, involved in, uh, say, non-Earth origin exotic technology, <laughs> like non-Earth origin is in the law. It's in the draft legislation. So I, I, we have all this speculation about Tic Tac videos. I'm just like... Have you read what members of Congress and people meeting in SCIFs have, like, gone into a SCIF, heard someone tell them there's secret tech- alien technology in a bunker? They take that seriously enough to now introduce legislation. They pass that legislation unanimously out of the Senate Select on Intelligence on a bipartisan basis. That goes into the National Defense Authorization Act. It gets endorsed by the Senate Majority Leader. The White House gives it an implicit nod. Like... I'm sorry, but like, forget the Tic Tac video. Like this is the story, right? Like this is what's happening. And I think it's happening kind of, I think only now I think people are gonna start paying attention because it was kind of like a taboo t- subject to report on. No one wants to be seen as being like the weird alien reporter, but it's like, I don't know what to tell you, like it's in the law. Either our, either our, our military and intelligence community has gone insane and all of our legislators are, have gone along for the ride. It's possible, but that should be something we should like be worried about, right? Like, why is our entire Congress political system? Why is a uh, you know the Senate Majority Leader like, tweeting like essentially drawing explicit attention to this new commission that he analogizes to the JFK assassination? There's too much there. It's like i I'm like why like what is the like you could you could all I mean I, we could I say it's all big psyop but I'm like. Okay, but that's a crazy psyop. Like, what is like that? Should be almost more concerning than like it's really alien technology. Like, why is this all happening? Yeah, and yet people seem to. I think we have this. Um, uh, like we have this resistance to it. I get it, right? Because it's such a bizarre thing, and most people don't want to talk about it because it kind of makes people feel uncomfortable.
1: Um, Well, it answers one of the biggest questions that everybody has: is Are we alone? mm -hmm. It just answers that question. It's like. Okay, now we know we're not alone. Now we're, now we're in Star Wars
0: world. Well, we're in a different world. I don't know what world we're in, but um, I think people also, but I don't know how much that's true because humanity has gone through so many radical shifts in our, just our basic, like what you might even call our basic metaphysical condition, right, like humanity has never really been in a simple, single stable place, like, especially in the past few hundred years of industrial technological civilization. Like our view of the world of reality is like radically revised as we figured out. Oh, the world is the world is round, and there's other planets that aren't just like you know cracks in the firmament, and oh. asteroids can fall from the sky. They're not just like you know made up things. But we all look up at the sky.
1: We all. I think everybody questions that. Are we alone?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in the next. 300 to 600 days, we might find out that we're not alone and there's
0: direct evidence. And it's just like... I think that's a reasonable possibility.
1: I think i think it's... To an- me, that's like, fuck! <laughs> that's like something we've thought about. I i don't know if about you, but that to me is like a holy fuck moment. Of course. More than anything in my life, mm-hmm. that's a holy fuck moment. We're not alone. We might even see... Well, we don't know what we'll see. We might see a craft and go, fuck, here it is.
0: Yeah, and I think, again, like I, because I've been thinking about this for a while, you know, you have like the wow, and I think you have the shrug, right, a bit. Like, I still have to pay my taxes, gotta drop the kids off at school. So until you tell me this materially changes my life, this is gonna be like the, oh shit, what is this? Like, this is crazy, and then you go, I gotta drive to school, whatever, the next day, right? But I think what I, what does concern me a bit, I think about this a lot, is like, the second and third order implications for, say, financial stability, right? For um, political stability, mm-hmm. right? Um, this is why it's a very delicate thing, right? If this is true, I mean, only 90%. I'm, mm. I'm pretty sure the median person watching this is maybe like 25, 30%. But if that's your median credence, maybe you're zero. But, I, you know, I don't think you should be zero, especially if you're paying attention to what the Senate's doing and what the Congress is doing. Um, maybe the only, maybe that's only enough to get you up to five or 10 But even if you have a five or 10% credence on a world-changing scenario, like if you're, you know, something, if you, if you play in like markets, right? <laughs> like you're like, I think about tail options. I think about oh, like you know, there's a tail event for you know every every option price, right? And maybe it's underpriced at the moment, right? It would be it would be my now. I don't think I can bet on this. I don't think there's a good market for this. No, I, um, I thought about it. Uh, it's hard to think about how you would um, put a put a good like directional wager on disclosure. Like what what financial assets would move up or down? Um, it's an interesting sidebar. Um, but I actually think what what's what's interesting to me about the implications of, if we get to this point where the government sort of slowly boils the frog, I don't think it'll be like an event where like all of a sudden the president says- conference with little green men. I think it'll be a slow build, a slow, like they are putting in place a framework, right? So like you, because we think about like big, like our whole political semiotics and symbology around um, like the inauguration we literally construct an edifice the certain rituals that we perform everyone gathers in a certain place you know essentially incantations of oaths and yada 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 and you know nothing like physically changed right but you've now transitioned power in an official process, right So we human beings ascribe a lot of meaning a, a lot of meaning to you know social fiction social, you know, what you call prestidization, right? Like magic tricks, right? Like, you know, an inauguration is a magic trick that everyone believes. Like, what does it mean to transition power? Like one president leaves, it's like, oh, they just, they don't sleep in the same bed. But what it really means is that some person put their hand on a Bible, set an oath in front of a lot of people. Everyone watched it. Everyone believes that now that person is what we call the president. That person's not right now. That's a political topic, right? But like that is a, like a that means a lot, right? That is what shifts belief, and that shifts the whole structure of political and power arrangements in our society. Those things are triggered, and now different people can give orders to the military. Different people can launch nuclear weapons because of that social fiction. So these are extremely powerful um, uh, uh, systems of cultural production, reification, and I think we're going to have to construct a similar thing for this, and that's I think what you're what, what you're what you're seeing now with. Like, that's really what, to me, that commission is the most important thing that has ever happened in this entire, probably 75-year history of the subject.
1: This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. And not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VOP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino has over 2,800 games and tournaments for you to try out. And with their 24-7 live chat support, you can always get help if you need. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up today, we have Mutiny Wallet. All right, Mutiny is a new self-custodial Lightning Wallet that runs in the browser. There is no download needed, and it is even installable on your phone as a progressive web app. Now, Mutiny allows for instant onboarding with channels that open on the fly. It supports both on-chain and Lightning transactions and has encrypted cloud backups protected by the seed words. It also integrates with NOSTA using Wallet Connect to make zaps, tips, and even subscriptions possible directly from the wallet. Now, Mutiny is still early and in beta. So for now, just play around with it with some small amounts, but their aim is to be a great spending wallet. Mutiny is fully open source with MIT open source license. We love them. We love Tony. Go check it out. It's mutinywallet.com, which is M-U-T-I-N-Y-W-A-L-L-E-T.com. Next up, we have Unchained. Now, the events and exchanges and in traditional banks over the last year were all an important reminder of how critical it is for you to take control of your private keys. But taking ownership of your Bitcoin keys, you know what? It can be daunting. That's why our good friends at Unchained offer a personalized concierge onboarding service. Now, I have personally been through this process and set up the vaults for my football team, Rail Bedford. And you know what? I know this is a personal recommendation here. But the multi-sig solution, which Unchained created, is so easy to use. They ship the required devices to you, and they walk you through it step by step, so you can understand exactly how the vaults work. Now, after you set up, Unchain continues to provide you with regular support to help you get comfortable with controlling your keys. So if you've been putting off taking control of your Bitcoin wealth, Unchain's concierge onboarding is a simple way for you to get started. Get it done sooner rather than later. You can book your onboarding today at unchained.com forward slash whatbitcoindid. And at the checkout, you can get $50 off with the promo code whatbitcoindid. That is unchained.com. U N C H A I N E D dot com forward slash what Bitcoin did. Also, today we have Wazabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wazabi is the easiest way to send and receive Bitcoin privately, and even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and provides privacy by default. Now, with Wazabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can start coin joining straight away. And Wasabi makes CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users. And BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi just dropped a badass new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can CoinJoin directly on the hardware wallet, which obviously is very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A. B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. It could be a gift. A rival. I mean, I mean well, looking into Hollywood, you've the seen the rival. The implications, Arrival. yeah. So now if you want to go into the can there be a gift here that's just is, gonna what change is the, humanity? Is
0: this good news, is this bad news? I've yeah. been giving you kind of my, my analytic assessment of the situation as it pertains to the legislative developments, the um, different you know, classes of, of, of explanation, my personal sort of epistemic journey to elevate my credences by looking at these different pieces of circumstantial firsthand witness testimony, et cetera. All this amounts to, okay, if, if I'm 90%, non-human intelligence. Well, what does that 90% ascribe to those other four categories of explanation? Do I think it's some extraterrestrial cousin who's coming here to kind of be our big brother slash guide? Are they here to contain us because they think we're a threat to them? Are they interdimensional beings? Are they us from the future here to warn us of an impending cataclysm that they wanna prevent? Are they, you know, um, ultra-terrestrials that have been here for hundreds of thousands of years and they're just like stuck here (laughs) for whatever reason? I really don't know. I have no, like, evidence one way or the other. Um, I find myself, like, w- like radically moving pretty quickly because I don't have, like, one feature when you don't have a whole lot of evidence is that, um, one, you should update a lot, right? It doesn't mean you shouldn't update, but you should update very, very frequently, right? That's, something that some people, um, uh, Uh, have a mistake uh, in reasoning where if you don't have enough, um, to change your mind, you shouldn't just change your mind. But actually what it means is you should constantly be jumping from alternatives, but you're like the, the sort of what you might call like the, um, reaction function or like the, like the, like the the energy uh, gradient that flips you from one belief to another belief should be pretty low. So you can explore all of them. And that way you're never locked in because if you ever stick in one belief, then you're usually psychologically, you tend to look for evidence that confirms that belief. You tend to want to, you know, you know, reject evidence, you know, even potentially strong evidence that really works against whatever you've kind of anchored on. So if you don't anchor on anything, um, then you can kind of like play with everything. But it also makes it very hard because you could ask me today and I think, yeah, you know, I just read an interesting paper that I think is, you know, really cool that if it's correct, is a good sort of candidate theory of quantum gravity. In this theory of quantum gravity, in fact, you know the conformal future and the conformal past are essentially identical, which makes time travel potentially, like, theoretically possible. And so maybe now, if if I see there's a f- candidate unification of quantum gravity that makes time travel at least theoretically feasible, that should that should like like instantly tell me to update on my time travel credence because before I read that paper, I would say. You know, I don't think time travel is physically possible. I have a metaphysics of time that thinks time is relatively um like objective. There's no like threads of time. there is no multiverse. it's just one universe. it updates like like a computational process going to the going to the definite future, which is like literally unmade or literally made as it happens but if i if I change that view, then I should change the view of what could explain this technology. um so that's like I think. But people are very unsatisfied with that because people want to know, like, well, what is happening here? And I think, of I think, fundamentally, you just have to be very uncomfortable, very comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, I'm and- okay
1: with just knowing. Just yeah, I just want to know. We're not alone, and that's fucking cool because that to me that is it's not uh, like this binary. Oh, there's this other,
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, alien civilization in the universe. Mm-hmm. That to me says there's lots of them.
0: Yeah. I mean, the one point I, I really want to mention here, because I've been thinking about this, and I'm, is you can't keep this subject in the... If, if we go on this trajectory, lots of things are affected. But one of the things that I professionally focus on is the geopolitical situation, as we've talked about in similar and mm-hmm. previous conversations. But professionally, I look a lot at um, both, say, you know, the both sort of cybersecurity, cyber threats from nation states, the multinationals. And because of that, I also pay attention a lot to the geopolitical dynamics driven by a lot of, by the U.S.-China relationship, either waxing or waning. And so I have to force, I have to like try to think about, you know, like consistent, putting those different domains together. And I think, okay, well, if this, if this is true, if this is the trajectory that we're officially on, with this commission being set up, with, you know, these official reports being written, with potentially more witnesses coming out, like Rush, but maybe witnesses that actually have firsthand accounts that give, that, give those accounts Do you in public, think that's what's coming next? I would... I would think it's more likely than not. Again, nothing guaranteed, but I'm reasonably confident there will be more people coming forward in a similar manner.
1: Do you that... have any inside secret information?
0: I've only heard what people tell me, and I don't know if that's true, but they say, yeah, more people are coming. Now, does that, they can change their mind? They could be. They could be. They could be told to shut up, right? I mean, who knows, right? Until they sit down in front of Congress, raise their hand, and you know, spill the tea. You know, it's all. It's all a crapshoot. Um, but I think really intensively about the U.S.-China relationship is the most strategic relationship this decade. And I mean, we've had previous conversations about the mm-hmm. tail risk of, say, a Taiwan war being extremely destabilizing for the global economy, if not, you know, existentially threatening, if it really escalates. And it's one of the most, you know, um, anxiety-producing topics of analysis for anyone who seriously looks at geopolitics, or if you're a policymaker in the military, in looking at, well, what does this look like as China maybe reaches close to military parity in the South China Sea? And they get ambitious. Like, that is this defining geopolitical flashpoint, you know, potentially this decade. Anything that potentially can affect the, like, um, the trajectory, I think should be really like, closely examined, right? Um, and if there's anything that can steer the trajectory that like, makes that really bad scenario less likely, I think we should find ways to encourage that, right? Like, there's very few things I could think of that would materially change the decision-making and strategic calculus of Beijing, right? Given their historical imperatives, their promises to their people, their technology modernization objectives, the intense sort of uh, security dilemma between US and China. There's very few things I can imagine as like a deus ex machina that would like be sufficient to steer that relationship in a positive direction. This might be one of the few things that you could imagine being like getting to that level where it's like, oh, well, maybe this is enough of a shock, enough of a rejiggering of the decision-making calculus that, um, if we play our cards right, could be, could be used to, um, you know, advantage global peace. <laughs> so, uh, well, and I'm not crazy. Like, you think I'm crazy saying this. Guess what I just paraphrased? I paraphrased Representative Mike Gallagher, who's the guy, <laughs> the chairman of the Senate Select Committee on China, who's got both UAPs on his mind and China competition on his mind and how we can bring this together, who wants to, uh, you know, quote, bring this into the presidential conversation.
2: But that, that may... Help move towards like world peace, but does it? Is there not a risk of having to fight aliens?
0: Well, <laughs> I, I don't think it's. I, I think I would reject both of those assumptions. I don't think disclosure would lead the world peace. Um, I don't know if it's we're. I, we should, I don't think we should try to fight aliens. I don't think it'd be a... <laughs> a, a lose. I don't think we'd end up on the winning side. Um, you know, I think this is. I think, you know. Let's hope they're not assholes. <laughs> I think. I think things are weirder than we give our than we want to believe. Yeah. Right. We construct a. Uh, an account of history, an account of our civilization, an account of who we are as human beings that allows us to go about our day with like out, without taking too, with, without having to constantly question too many things. Like mm-hmm. just cognitively, you have to assume a lot to just go about your day and just not have to like care. Right? But if you are forced to care, there's lots of things you will like go look at and you're like, oh, this is this is weird, right? And I think reality is weird, right? Like there's no... Like physics is weird. Now we like, we call it normal because people study it in labs and they get paid and they have nice titles and they give, you know, good talks. And they're seen like professional articulate people describing quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is insane. Yet we're producing technology potentially, speculative, maybe whether it works or not, quantum computing. that's based off of the weird, weird, you know, superpositions that apparently physical reality enables. We just accept that. Okay. So there's a certain category of things that are objectively bizarre. But we've put into the box of normal, and we've built technology systems and arrangements of power and money and funding and technology and businesses premised on them. But I think there's no like hard line between like, what we consider bizarre that's in that box and what's bizarre that's not in that box.
1: Like, I don't know. I think we've agreed that quantum is weird. Quantum is weird? I mean, what was it Einstein said about quantum? He said it's weird.
0: Well, there's been a lot. yeah, there's, 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 there's the, there's the Feynman quote, which is that like no one truly understands quantum mechanics. Um, Einstein had the quote, like, God, um, God doesn't play dice. Like he, he actually rejected this idea of spooky action at a distance. He wanted to try to find what he called um, sort of hidden variables. So he created, um, which was actually disproven, but um, he put it together with the um, Einstein, Podolsky and Rosen, um, a model of quantum mechanics where there actually were objective hidden variables, like discrete variables. So there was no inherent ambiguity in quantum mechanics. And then we did these tests um, they're called the Bell tests. There were two Bell inequalities by David Bell. Um, they did these tests looking at sort of entangled photons and take electrons, and they basically found they violated these inequalities and there actually are no hidden variables, that there's an implicit trade-off between non-locality and determinateness in reality. It's just yep. just
1: Hold on, what does that mean in the...
0: Uh, I mean, nature's, uh, you can think nature at a fundamental scale is fuzzy, right? Um, the object in quantum mechanics is a wave function. That's like the ontological entity that, that like the mathematics describes. It's this like little spear looking thing. That's the thing that is evolving. There's a Schrodinger equation, which basically says this is how this wave function, which is defined as you know, an energy field over a manifold, just like this, you know, spreading out. It exists in all defined space. The, the equations of quantum mechanics, the Schrodinger equations, say how that, how that curve sort of moves over time. And then when you make a measurement, Sort of the measurement problem of quantum mechanics is we never actually see the whole wave function. We don't see an electron everywhere. We see an electron here. Because when we see it, we're making a measurement that what's called collapses the wave function um, into a determinant particle with a measured, you know, energy and momentum. And so the the mystery of quantum mechanics is uh, you have these sort of discontinuities between the unitary evolution of the Schrodinger equation which describes an object that exists in superposition in all possible, you know, sort of energy states where they're called like eigenstates. And then you do a measurement and it collapses to one measured eigenstate. Um, And there's a sort of a philosophical question of like, well, is that a physical process? Are you actually collapsing the wave function? It's created a whole, I think, somewhat more mystical and ill-founded conceptual confusion about like the observer's consciousness is manipulating reality and like you're measuring it with your brain, um, but it's still a mystery of like many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics where the wave function doesn't collapse at all. And in fact, what I was just referring to in that uh, physics paper I was just reading is uh, it takes, just basically bites the bullet and assumes quantum mechanics is true at all scales and there's no collapse, what's basically like the full many-worlds interpretation the sort of Everettian interpretation of quantum mechanics and that in fact, there is no collapse. There's just an infinite number of all possible conditions that obtain, and you sort of play that out to all possible scales, and you can do some interesting sort of um, sort of gauge dualities that show that you know you get a still you get a, you get consistency mathematically. Philosophically, it's bizarre, um, but that's that's sort of where this gets you. It's like that's why I did physics philosophy as undergrad. I think the, the 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 UAPs if they're real manifest some knowledge about physical reality that we don't have, which is going to force like like all, all revolutions in physics, forces like a fundamental conceptual like revaluation of how we think about the world. Like We think about the world very differently now that we figure out quantum mechanics, but we know quantum mechanics isn't the final story. Like Everyone looks at Einstein's general relativity, we look at quantum mechanics, and they work in their respective domains, but they don't work when you try to examine them in um, domains where you need uh, like say high mass and tiny scales like black holes or the, or the, or or the big bang. Um, and the the equations are mutually inconsistent and that's where we've been stuck. Um, and so, yeah, like the, the speculation is maybe we're not stuck actually. Like maybe somebody has this secret physics knowledge that's been inspired by their study of UAPs, but just like how we, maybe if we had gone back in time, would we, if we had the ability, the US government had the ability to like, keep all of nuclear physics secret, would that have like, prevented some of the like, proliferation risks? If nobody even knew that like, nuclear physics was possible, I, I sort of, I'm arguing against myself, but like, just being mm. hypothetical. If that was possible, US government probably would have done that, right? Like, just like we did with encryption, up until like, you know, Diffie-Hellman, like, the NSA was threatening Diffie with not releasing his you know, um, uh, asymmetric encryption publicly. They said, "Look, well, you're effectively exporting controlled weapons, like, like we're gonna throw you in jail. And he called their bluff and they backed down eventually. And there was a big, you know, obviously a big court case and all that stuff. You
1: know, I interviewed him. Oh, really? Yeah. Smart guy. A long time ago, three, four years ago.
0: Longer. Yeah, one of my favorite ever interviews. I mean, he, yeah, I mean, that's a good example. If someone just figured something out about the nature of reality, that's sort of fundamental to the way things are structured, that allows asymmetric encryption. It's just, and then that, it starts super abstract, pure math, and then it turns into the foundational, you know, technology for modern civilization. We don't get, we don't get cloud systems. We don't get, you know, we don't get Bitcoin. You don't get any of this without yeah. that. And so I think we, we sometimes lose the lesson of like, these very abstract, somewhat opaque, maybe even mysterious domains of intellectual investigation are like disconnected from everyday life. But they're not like they quickly you know inhere and can you know basically be the main determinants of how our civilization evolves when was it uh it
2: was like four and a half years ago wow if we if if we did figure out the sort of the missing piece between those two equations, is it impossible to know what that would unlock or or do mm-hmm. we have an idea of what that would unlock
0: well now you're really speaking my language here because this is what i i uh you know my my like late night readings are often about like frontier physics. Um, and I always try to think about them, you know, with like a because I'm not a theoretical physicist. I'm not at the leading edge of research. I'm just trying to keep pace with what I think are more the interesting frontiers, but I'm always trying to understand like at a semi-intuitive level, like what, what does this mean? Like what's like the intuitive like grokking condition that I can have for this extremely complex set of, of, of ideas and mathematical concepts. And then from that, like, what does that imply about, like, technology, like engineering? Um, it's it's super fascinating. I mean, one area, just to plug it, because I think it deserves more attention, so I'll take the opportunity here to, you know, force people to read these um, interesting but very, uh, you know, dense papers, is um, a uh, physicist, mathematical physicist by the name uh, of, of Jonathan Garrard, G-O-R-A-R-D. And he's um, he uh, was inspired by some insights uh, really that Stephen Wolfram made, um, who's some of a controversial figure, heterodox physicist, but I think is, you know, very, very smart, very accomplished. Um, and certainly had this, I think, key insight about, um, looking at, uh, hypergraphs, sort of very abstract, like what's the most abstract thing you can think of, like a collection of points, just a bag of points that have, um, directed, um, edges to each other. Like, uh, you know, connections from one point, abstract point to another point, um, what can you do with that? If you just started with that, just an abstract bag of points with, with um, uh, that can have potential, you know, directed edges to each other. You can you can create that as like a hypergraph. So then, okay, you start with this very abstract collection of points. Well, so what can you? Well, this is just a you know very simple mathematical um, uh, collection, but you can have a rule that says, okay, take um, a section of the hypergraph that has you know that looks like this. You know this node connected to this node connected this node, and this, the the rule is just you know delete this edge, add a point connected to here, and you can have you know arbitrary number of different rules that are just rewriting the hypergraph. Just just, just you're just rewriting hypergraphs. And you can apply the rule, you have a simple rule, you can just apply it iteratively. Everywhere you see this sort of you know, specific structure in the graph, apply this rule, change it, do it, do it, do it arbitrarily across the hypergraph. What Wolfram and really Gerard has really elaborated on is if you actually just start from that very, very simple foundation, um, they've been actually able to show you can basically reconstruct quantum mechanics and general relativity. It's kind of insane, but on a discrete basis. Which tells me, it's, it, that's like, I find that fascinating. It's like, start with something that's very, very simple. Like, as simple as you can possibly imagine. And then um, just basically playing it out, doing the proper mathematical analysis, getting to the point where you re-derive the laws of physics that we've um, already figured out. And then take it further, right? Where does that go? Um, and it gets really abstract. But I think it's super fascinating because, you know, one of the connections UAPs I've been speculating about And we're really in the deep end, um, is, but I think you have to get there if you're really trying to like think about what these are because, you know, you're playing in unknown physics, and so kind of have to like go swim in those deep waters, is there's one of the things that's come out of this model, and I won't reconstruct it because we we don't want to send the audience uh, to sleep, is um, there's a a really tight relationship between how they um, represent the observer in these models and the physics that that observer sees. So... What do you mean how they represent the observer? So there's two conditions that they sort of mathematically define as making up an observer. One is they have a linear thread of time, which really um, implies like a certain um, causal invariance to the history of updates. So you imagine this like graph, you apply an update, it's a new graph. You apply an update, it's a new graph, you apply an update, it's a new graph. You can imagine like, just do the, do the chain of all those different states of the graph and look at like, you know, an, a line that looks at... You know the different updates that go through the network. That that is like the causal history, and there's different possible updates you can apply at any given time. And you can basically look at the space of states that are causally invariant, meaning you apply the rule here or apply the rule here, but then two, two or three or any arbitrary number of steps later, they lead to the same state of the mm-hmm. graph. So you can imagine it's like quantum mechanics, like it branches and then it reconverges to the same state. So you're basically like alternative paths. In in quantum mechanics, this is like what's called um, uh, like the Feynman path integral, where you look at all possible states of particle interaction, and eventually you look for the ones that basically are, you know, that converge to this a single state. Um, so that is, it's a loose analogy, but that's kind of essentially the analogy of like a loose, a, a single thread of time and are computationally bounded. Those are the two conditions. So if you apply those two conditions in how you look at this abstract structure of just pure hypergraphs, um, those two conditions mathematically make an observer who's like, Part of that graph that's changing, like we're all part of this hypergraph that's, you know, constantly being updated. Then an observer who's in that hypergraph, who's just a piece of the hypergraph, is being updated as part of the hypergraph, that has a linear thread of time. What it sees in this sort of structure, what it can look at, say in its, like, what what in general relativity is called, it's, um, its, its like, light cone, which is really just its causal history, its causal past, its causal future. Like, which possible influence in its past could lead to its state, which possible influences from its current state could lead to the future. It's kind of like like hourglass shape, but in a discrete fashion, because this is just a graph, not like a continuous manifold. Then there are those conditions of having this sort of um, causally invariant thread of time and having, so it's like one what the observer just is that history and it's computationally bound. I mean, there's a finite amount of computation that can be packed into a, a single volume of that network. If you just have those two conditions, then that observer perceives a manifold-like structure that obeys quantum mechanics and general relativity. You kind of rederive the equations of the Einstein field equations and, um, and, and, the, and the Schrodinger's equation uh, from those just two key, two, two key conditions. But the, the main difference is that it's all discrete. In quantum mechanics and relativity, I mean, the thing I've always disliked about those, like the unification approaches, they assume, they kind of assume a background of space, they assume a continuous manifold. Um, and these are just fields that sort of play out on top of that manifold, um, where there's a structure to that manifold, like continuous geometry. But like, it's, it's I don't know, like c- continuous stuff is like, you, it's like the, like the old Zeno's problem. You zoom in, you zoom in, you zoom in, you zoom in there's no inherent scale. Um, whereas if you have a discrete structure, there is a fundamental scale. Um, and the universe is just fundamentally discrete but you create a discrete version of quantum mechanics and general relativity. But I find that fascinating because one of the implications for say, like thinking about uh, both AI and UAPs is it embeds the concept of an observer like deeply into how you think about what physics you see. And essentially the space of physics, the space of minds defines the space of possible physics, Um, but not in like a wooey spiritual way, but like in a hard mathematical way. And so you have to think about, well, what would other minds that are defined differently, like C in, in reality. And this gets to like the last sort of bit of abstract physics talk here. Is I mentioned like you have these rules that you can apply. Well, what if you you can apply a single rule? You can apply different. You know, you can apply two rules. You can apply three rules. What if you applied every possible rule? It's you know, it's a little bit mathematically big like how you define every possible rule. But Gerard I think does his best in a decent way using like what's called um, higher order category theory or um, uh, homotopy type theory which is like the frontiers of current mathematics that sort of he elaborates using this structure. And what you get to is essentially um, a abstract mathematical object that is essentially the collection of all possible rules that can apply to any arbitrary configuration of these very abstract sort of fundamental like entities. Right. Just like a node in a bag of like a bag of points and some and relationships between them. Um, and. They define this like well, what in um, category theory is called uh, like a, an infinity one topos or an infinity groupoid. We're really going up there, but imagine like this big braided abstract ball that's like in the ethereal realm, right? That's like that is all of reality. And an observer, being an observer of a certain kind, essentially slices that higher dimensional, infinite dimensional ball in a certain certain way. And slicing that higher dimensional ball in a certain way, like being an observer of a certain kind. Like gives that observer a universe, makes that makes that universe make that observer see a universe, the one that we see, sees a universe of three plus one dimensions with quantum mechanics and relativity as its basic laws. Um, which implies if you could slice that higher dimensional structure differently, if there was a different foliation, is what mathematics mag called, there'd be a different rule of physics. Hmm. Now conceptually, right? Think about: is that a different? Is that a multiverse? Is just one object sliced different ways, perceived differently? Is it? Um, Uh, is it, is it, yeah, it's like this interdimensional blob, but I think, I don't know, like that's an interesting question of like, we, we assume that every mind that exists in the, in the universe is going to see the same universe as us, but maybe not. Maybe actually there's different aspects of reality that you only perceive when you have a different sort of cognitive structure, a different conscious structure. So that's really, you're going really into the, like, the bar conversation later tonight. Could you
2: re-explain that all in a bar later? <laughs> Could I, fuck? Um,
0: but... More <laughs> reading, yes.
2: Could the... Oh, I'm not even gonna if, mean, yeah, really, we, we going to try. If we do have the, another being that is mm-hmm. living under a different set of physical conditions, would we be able to interact with them, though?
0: Oh yeah, this is a fascinating topic. Um and actually Stephen Wolfram has done an interview with um, Lex Friedman and he talks about this um specifically because inherently, you know, communication is about information exchange, and information we think is um well is a uh, in computer science is like a informatic information theoretic concept, right? Like if you think about it like everything is computation, right? Like there's a certain way of describing something that at a certain level of detail accounts for all of its apparent properties, right? So like physics is essentially just a way of mathematizing how the universe as a ball of information is computing itself. So we are blobs of information computing ourselves, structured in a certain way that gives us consciousness and aliens might be structured in a slightly different way. Um, So I don't think we know like what are the conditions under which like you can transfer information from one blob of computing to another blob of computing. We have this problem with like dogs, like how do you commune with a dog or a mm. dolphin? I mean, I think it's just like an analogy from there to like aliens. Um, and like we, we can communicate with some of these other intelligent creatures, but very like, we're very roughly, right? We can't get all the high fidelity exchange that human beings have evolved as a social animal to like, not just communicate verbally, but to like read all the delicate signals of the sort of maxillofacial movements and embedded expectations, uh, we have an entire dedicated brain region, the Broca region, that's just like just for language, so there's no implicit reason why, you know, it's not possible to have communication, but I think just you would expect it to be very, very difficult, right? Mm. Um, and that, that I think is one way to think about, you know, the UAP is coming here is like, it's not. You know, like, you if you just dropped in, like, a community of dolphins that were, like, building nuclear weapons. You're like, how would you tell them it's a bad idea, right? <laughs> like, go and just start squeaking at them and hope that <laughs> they understand it, right? Like, I don't know if that would work. Or like, uh, you have to find some way to communicate with the dolphins in a way that would be intelligible to them that would get, they would get the message across, right? Um, and maybe that's what, you know, you're seeing is that like you'd find some way of sending messages in whatever way that you think can go, but it's probably going to be somewhat lossy um because every system is fundamentally you know unique to its own like you know uh, like pattern um of of like embedded communication in a certain social group or or species it's like highly evolved and attuned to how like their brains interpret information so it's very difficult to think that you could like construct a seamless way to communicate um across those that sort of maybe rather than
2: try and communicate you just figure out how to remotely turn the nukes off
0: yeah i mean you might just do things that are like kind of obvious. Yeah. Like, but so one interesting, I, 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 another paper folks should read is um my Robin Hansen, who's a uh, kind of a polymath economist, super smart guy. Um, he uh, was thinking about this this topic and I, you know, a lot of my ideas are sort of inspired by him as well, because he takes a very similar kind of try to be as rigorous and Bayesian as possible about this topic. Um, and he's looked at the sort of panspermia hypothesis, which is sort of in the ET version of subset four which is uh, based off of like, what we have decent physical scientific evidence for, right? So, for example, we know that Earth was um, born uh, as part of the solar system in a stellar nursery with about 10,000 maybe other stars you know, 5 billion years ago. And so there are 10,000 other star systems that were all kind of born in the same like gas cloud. And in that sort of first several hundred million billion years, there was a lot of material exchange between these different systems, so they're close together. So they're constantly being bombarded by um, asteroids and other... Uh, you know, just just sharing crap around. And so, you can imagine if, you know, one of those star systems kind of got the spark of life, like saw this combinatorial um, sort of, you know, self-replicating chemistry problem on some geothermal vent. Maybe we weren't the first. Maybe, you know, some other planet got lucky before us and then got, you know, got some way up like the genetic complexity ladder, got hit by an asteroid, bunch of stuff blasted into space, drifted around for a few hundred million years got captured by our solar system, eventually you know, landed in our oceans and helped sort of seed life here. This is like a somewhat speculative, but serious um, topic of investigation in astrophysics and um, sort of exobiology. And okay, that's like an interesting hypothesis, but, but then play it out, right? Imagine say that like sibling of ours, the big brother, big sister, that had a head start on us, that evolved life, maybe advanced life, um, got to a point where they decided, you know what? We don't want to expand anymore. Maybe there's like a binary choice for life. Life either, you know, decides to expand, in which case, once it gets to a certain point, it's hard to stop the expansion, right? Like you send out probes, those probes can self-replicate, send out more probes. It's like a chain reaction. It's impossible to stop. And they know that 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 could happen and they want to stop that for whatever reason. Maybe it's a cultural reason. Maybe they don't want to create seeds of their own civilization that can come back and compete with their home civilization. Maybe they don't want their future, uh, um, uh, you know, inheritors to be finally different from them and, you know, radically change their culture. They want to keep what they've got. So they lock themselves down. They decide not to become a grabby alien civilization. They decide to become a non-grabby civilization, meaning they don't expand. That is like a very strong, rule that they have, and they've been able to effectively enforce it potentially for hundreds of millions of years if they've gotten this head start. They get to a point where they successfully enforce this rule, which means they really don't let anyone leave. They have the strong ability to enforce that rule. But they look across the rest of the galaxy and they can detect the stars that were their cousins because the their their, their stellar composition, like we can see they have a characteristic gas composition, and they might be like, all right like they might know about panspermia as a possibility. They might worry that another civilization could eventually nucleate in one of their sibling star systems Mm. and emerge and basic, maybe not adopt their rule about being, about not being grabby may start expanding and may come and take over their civilization, which would not be great for them. (laughs) And so they would probably be very proactive and they would, you know, do the one limited exception to their non-grabby rule, which would be sending out limited probes to any potential, you know, planet system uh, that, could emerge as an advanced technological civilization. And this would be their standard operating procedure is sort of wait around for that civilization to get to the point where it evidences capability to potentially be about to expand. You know, be the Elon, you know, we're launching mark- like self replicating rockets potentially in a few decades is like his ambition. Um, and that would be the one you'd want to intervene, right? Then you'd maybe have a protocol which is you detect you know, gamma rays are characteristic energy signatures of nuclear weapons. Is like, this is like the key, it's, you know, indicator that a civilization is about to, you know, potentially be a, a threat to you. And then you, you buzz around. You, you let, you let that civilization know that they're not the top dog. And you implicitly, you know, put yourself at the top of the status hierarchy that, you know, there's an advanced civilization that's here that you can't do anything about, that can do things that you can't do, that you don't understand. Implicitly Human beings, we tend to defer to that. Like the way we select kings and presidents still is like, they have the most power. They're like, they're all the most important, most obviously impressive things around. We're gonna defer to them. This is the
1: alien version of fuck about, find out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: And so they wouldn't wanna give too much away about them, but they, you know, sit at the top of our status hierarchy, you know, just eventually we'd get the hint and we either get the hint, in which case, they, you know, successfully implanted their rule about not being grabby. We voluntarily uh, decide to agree with their rule. But there's always, a, there's always a catch. If we decide not to obey their rule and decide to go out and sprout in the universe, they might intervene. And they might that might not be so good for humanity. And so that would be the implication of like, well, maybe we should just accept the rule. And that would be like kind of a depressing um, reality. I don't know if that's the case, but this is like okay, aliens are here, but maybe they actually don't want to share too much about themselves. Maybe we'll never know too much about them. They're here to basically enforce their rule about not being grabby, and that's it. And we're kind of like trapped here until maybe we figure out a way to escape. That would be, that's like one interesting sci-fi scenario. Or it's not that at all. And that was just, that's just like an interesting story. I have no idea. Right. What's the
1: TLDR (laughs) timeline we need to look to now?
0: Well, um, this summer I think is going to be very interesting. Uh, I... There might be hearings at the end of July in the House Oversight Committee, which I've heard everything from, eh, to like, oh my God. So, I don't know. Um, The House Oversight Committee is the committee in Congress that has probably the least direct access to the testimony given by these whistleblowers, which has happened in the intelligence committees. But they may get some interesting uh, witnesses to come forward. Could be very compelling open public testimony. Could be riveting television. They haven't set the date yet, but it looks like pretty... Um, pretty likely to happen at the end of July. Then the Congress breaks for August session, and then they go off to the district. Nothing formal or official happens. Action might pick back up again in September. And that is really where I think there's going to be a lot of wrangling on the political side between the White House and the Senate about what happens with specifically the, the Senate Select Committee Intelligence. Do they do open hearings or not in September? That's like an open question. Um, debate whether that actually happens or not. But that would, be a, that would be a political decision, probably being directed by the White House because Senator Mark Warner, who's the Democratic chair of the Segment Intelligence, he's been very mum on this whole topic while his vice chair, Senator Mark, Rub- Mark Rubio, who's Republican, has been out front being very explicit in acknowledging David Rush's testimony. Um, but Marco Rubio and Mark Warner, when it comes to the uh, Segment Intelligence, they've been like, they're actually quite bipartisan, very close... Very close in how they coordinate these public messaging and all of the things that have come out of the committee have been bipartisan and unanimous. So I suspect Mark Warner is fundamentally not on a different page, but politically he can't be the one leading it because he doesn't want to put the White House in a difficult position. Um, uh, Ross Colthart has reported that the National Security Advisor, um, Jake Sullivan, attended one of these crash retrieval witness briefings sometime in the last few months. And if you remember after the Chinese balloon incident that occurred, the White House set up a specific White House-led UAP working group, led by the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State, uh, the DNI, SecDef, and nothing's ha- like it's like it was formed. They announced it, and then nothing's been t- said anything about it. <laughs> so I'm like, what's happening with this White House UAP working group that is at the level of a principal? So. In the White House National Security Council structure, the principals committee is like the most senior structure. Like that is like where the critical like war decisions get made, right? They created a, an equivalent structure specific for UAPs with that senior level membership after the balloon incident, which always struck me as odd. Like if you knew the structure of the White House Security Council, the National Security Council, um, that's like a very senior entity to create for what was perceived as this kind of like a it got a little bit of a geopolitical goof, right? Like the PLA didn't tell she, the winds went the wrong direction and we got embarrassed. We had to shoot it down, whatever. Um, so it was, it was an odd incongruity between you know, the apparent significance of the balloon incident and then the, the, the structural response inside the White House that we've never, we haven't heard a, th- a single thing of. And then the Senate Click Committee does this sort of stuff with legislation for the NDAA and, and Intelligence Authorization Act. And then boom, Schumer comes out. Schumer is, you know, he was not involved in this conversation at all up until he just comes out and says, we're gonna do a presidential commission. What? Where'd that come from? So that is, tells me the clock is, the clock is on. Okay. And September hearings, the, the, the real question is how much comes out before a presidential campaign heats up? There are folks, I think, that want as much to come out as possible before Thanksgiving because they don't want it to become such a partisan thing. Once you spin up the machinery, of the presidential campaign, you know, it's hard to have a conversation about this in a, like, what you might want to say is like a bipartisan, sober way. Aliens on the ballot box. <laughs> so I think there's a kind of a bit of an urgent, an urgency to like move it along. Maybe you don't get the full kit and caboodle, right, this year, but you get a lot. And then, of course, the point of the legislation that Schumer just introduced is, gets passed by the end of the year, typically in December, the, the legislation sets a 300-day clock for the for the commission, so that would basically put you at like the presidential election in 2024. So the next six to 18 months, wild, probably going to be very interesting. Politically, what's been decided? I don't know. My speculation is that what's safe is what we would call nuts and bolts, which is craft and maybe bodies or maybe drones, you know, whatever. But stuff, material, you know, objects that we can talk about that we've been trying to figure out how they work. What I don't think they're going to talk about is the whole abduction thing, Mm -hmm. which is a separate ball of wax that's like truly in like the, like laden with taboo and like Mm -hmm. cultural tropes, right? That's like, but if you're being a true Bayesian, right? You start with the premise of, there either are or not non-human technology in our presence. Yes or no. If you take the yes tree with some degree of credence, then you're like, do we have possession of these vehicles? Yes or no. Branch of the tree. Have we successfully reverse-engineered them to create, you know, similar or close to similar technology? Yes or no. Are they? Are, do they have uh, pilots? Yes or no. Have we retrieved those pilots? Yes or no. Do we figure out whether they're, say, like the builders of the craft or whether they themselves have been made by the people who made the craft? Yes or no. So you can like that clearly branches, and then you're like, oh, if they're real craft flying around, and people are reporting having been taken into this craft, is that plausible? I don't know, but once you've gotten to that point of the Bayesian tree- You get to anal probes. <laughs> I, mean, it's because, I mean, there's a reason why it's a story, yeah. right? It's because it was, but that's how we've socially con- um, processed that, right? Because it's such a, um, such a jarring possibility. The way we sort of socially digest it is we lampoon it, we make it into a cultural joke, so we don't have to treat it as a serious possibility. And right? then
2: all
1: those people who said they were abducted, suddenly uh, they're taking I mean, if it were true,
0: if it were true, it would be sort of a grand tragedy. These people were totally yeah. mocked and derided for decades for being crazy loons. They told what the if truth. they weren't, right? Yeah. I'm just saying we have to treat that as a serious possibility, <laughs> um, and not like rely on the sort of typical cultural tropes that we've just inherited. Um, to, you know, guide us in this really bizarre and sort of dark forest of an epistemic journey. Um, but that would be the... That's the thing I don't think we're going to get out of this commission. I just think it's just, for whatever reason, we decided that's off limits. We're going to talk about... We're going to get up to real non-human intelligence, their objects, trying to figure out how they work. You know, we're going to open it up a bit. It will bring in big tech. We'll bring in some more scientists. That's how we're going to play it. But then this other stuff, that's kind of what you would call, like, in the in the in the Woo file, like alien abductions, like um, consciousness experiences, like weird remote viewing sorts of stuff, which has always been historically connected to this stuff. Like if you actually look at the historical record, like all the the weird weird stuff that the US government has done has all been like in one big box. And the UAP stuff and the UFO stuff was never really that like separate from these other weird things that we did. Like we did lots of things to try to, like there was remote viewing programs for decades, whether they worked or not, who knows, but we spent a lot of money. We actually had like programs set up. We've now reported on them, where we like the CIA hired and you know, had training programs for like people that could try to like, see if they could see a nuclear submarine with their mind. And those programs were like adjacent to, sometimes being run by the same people that were running the legacy UAP investigation programs. I don't know, that's like a historical fact that's odd, but it, does that mean that you discount the UAP stuff? Maybe it does because it's associated with this thing that you've prima facie decided is totally implausible and crazy. And so by its association with the UAP stuff, that discounts your credence to the UAP stuff, but it could go the other direction. Okay.
1: Uh, Anyone listening, what would you recommend (laughs) they read or watch if they want to learn more?
0: Yeah, I would recommend staying to start in that well-lit clearing. You can venture off in dark forest and you can be lost very quickly. Um, so in that center clearing, the book by Ross Colthart, books by Leslie Keen, um, the reporting that they did, Leslie Keene and Ralph Blumenthal did with David Grush, the interview with David Grush that Ross Colthart had, subsequent interviews that Ross Colthart has given, like he's probably the, has the best sources that I've seen in this space. Now it doesn't mean I give ev- everything he says 100% credence, but I think he has probably the most um, most access to these programs. And has the best sources, so I listen and basically to everything he says, just to try to like get a hint. Um, uh, the like the debrief, which is the source of that original article, is a great publication. Um, I would uh, I would I would look at. Um, there's a guy, Dean Johnson, on Twitter who has a website, um, and he just tracks. All he does is tracks the uh, all the legislative stuff on this, and he's like super on top of it, and he's like really good at looking through the legislative language and interpreting it. And that's a good guide to just look at all the legislation that has been proposed and passed in the past two or three years. What's in law? Just read the language. Don't have to speculate what it means. Just acquaint yourself with what your representatives in Congress, people that we know have been have been privy to very, like, jarring claims by well um, informed and highly uh, cleared senior intelligence officials are writing into law you as a citizen in a democracy should be aware of what your representatives are putting into law. Whether you want to tell them that's crazy and stop doing it, it's your prerogative. Whether you want to know more and want to understand what's motivating them to put that in law and you need to know what they know and that's your right as a citizen, then I would also contact your representatives and, and, and advocate for that. Um, but that's where I would start. I mean, there's a whole, if you really want to get into this family, you can like read and watch all sorts of YouTube videos. Again, that can get you into lots of different, um, lots of different, you know, potential rabbit holes. But I just say, well, there's more than enough in that clearing for, I'd say the average person to perk up and pay attention. And that's where I would start.
1: Uh, there's a whole load of stuff I want. Uh, we're going to have to do this again sometime because <laughs> there's a whole load of stuff I want to ask you on the physics side of things. Like yeah. the establishment of physics. <laughs> well, <laughs> where uh, the laws come from. How can laws exist? Uh, that whole rabbit hole, but we can do that another time. I probably won't understand 90% of what you tell me. but I Yeah, t- and I I'm, I'm actually not
0: the best articulator of those ideas. I try I mean, to pretty, read about them, but yeah. You,
1: you pretty much nailed uh, uh, the Large Hydron Collider. Oh, yeah. Uh, but look, fuck, oh my God, this is unbelievable. Uh, Matthew, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Is your mind blown? god i absolutely love this matthew is all over this topic and i will definitely be keeping up to date with him i'm going to be following what's happening in congress i mean it's so weird like this is the thing since we were kids we all think about are we alone here are we alone in this universe and it's so freaking weird to think actually we might not be and we might find out very soon or it could just be one huge sign up who knows but I am absolutely here for this. But listen, I'm curious to hear your feedback on this one. Like I said, if you're like, screw you, Pete, only want Bitcoin, I want to know. And if you're like, no, do you know what? I really wanted to hear this. Let me know. And you know what? If you're like, look, Pete, I don't care about this show, but I'm happy to skip it. I can go and listen to a Marley Bent show or something else this Friday. Cool. Just let me know. Very occasionally, we do want to do shows like this. All right. Let me know what you think. It's hello at whatbitcoin did.com.
2: do, 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 do.